one of my favorite frogs, the smoky jungle frogs. Those those are really cool and uh I didn't realize until the first time I went down there their their alert call. So when you when you grab one of those things in the middle of the jungle at like one o'clock in the morning, it sounds like you're like ripping a baby in half. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. From the Ground Up podcast number 54. Are you sure that number's right? Yeah, I think. <laughs> I don't think so. I disagree. But it doesn't really matter. So we have a few things to get out of the way. Um, our Amazon link. So all you do is click on, it will be in the info of this podcast and then on all our YouTube videos. All you have to do is click on a link and it brings you to Amazon and buy things on Amazon just as you normally would. And then that gives us a little kickback that supports the podcast as well as you will see Ian supporting a one of our shirts which is actually the one he has isn't available won't ever be available <laughs> and but there'll be a similar one that comes out march 1st so those also support the podcast the people who won the contest i sent those out today so you should be getting them um the one girl in south africa will be getting hers um sometime like a, a almost so. a month from there like 10 but... to 20 days so um yeah, we kind of forgot to be like, eh, maybe U.S. only, but it all well, worked out. Next, <laughs> gi- next giveaway, time. we might do U.S. only, but... Just for the matter of time, because I wanted everyone to get them before they launch. But anyway, March 1st, we put up the um, pictures of the shirts that are going to launch March 1st on Instagram. Um, what else is there? I feel like there's Carpet Fest. That is the first weekend of May. That's going to be Southern Carpet Fest, our Carpet Fest. The, the one that's superior to Ian's Carpet Fest, which you may have heard of. <laughs> But, I mean, we digress. Um, what else is there? Did I miss anything? No. Nope, I think sorry. I finally may have gotten everything, and it's probably only because there's less things since Southeast Carpet Fest has been coming on. Oh, and we don't have to ask people to vote for us because that's over. That's true. That's also over the Reptile Report voting. So, now that we got all that stuff out of the way, Ian, how are you doing and what are you drinking over on your end? I'm doing good, guys. I'm drinking... Uh... Cold Heine. Nice, nice. It's a classic. We are drinking a Breckenridge Vanilla Porter. It is. It's I. Um, but anyway, Ian, so did you grow up in South Florida? Uh, I did. I grew up down in Miami and um, lived in the kind of like the north end of, of Dade County until I was about 17 and then moved up to North Florida where I went to the University of Florida up in Gainesville. And then after school, moved back to Miami. And then uh, we settled here in, in West Palm Beach when we, uh, my wife and I decided to have kids. Awesome. So did you grow up around reptiles and loving reptiles? How did that begin? You know, I did. Um, so it's kind of a funny story. Um, when my younger brother, who's about two years younger than me, was born, my parents got me uh, a fish tank and a train set. And my uncle shortly thereafter got me a Florida box turtle. And it's kind of like those three things, I guess, kind of stuck for a long time. And we're all hobbies growing up. Uh, we still have aquariums and reptiles and my dad still got trains. Um, so it's just something we were into from a very young age. And I was fortunate enough that I, uh, I actually grew up 
in a uh, on the the driving range of a golf course. And so come about five, six o'clock when the golf course closed, we had 360 acres behind our house that were just, you know, wide open, basically just with a chain link fence around it. And so we had everything from gators to turtles to snakes and frogs and toads and salamanders. And I mean, just everything we would, we would just be playing in the water traps and bringing stuff home that we weren't allowed to. So I got a lot of exposure to reptiles early on. Awesome. So I know you had mentioned if no one's heard um, Ian's NPR interview, check that out, Morelia Python Radio. But we kind of want to fill in some gaps and also kind of ask around the questions you've probably been asked a million times before. But um, so I know you started your own collection when you were pretty young. Um, did you start your collection, you know, like after you moved out and what was the time frame? Yeah, you know, growing up, it was always a matter of what could we sneak in the house? What could we hide from mom? What could we keep on the back porch that we were allowed to have? Um, so growing up, it was just kind of like those random things, you know, uh, a corn snake, a water snake, a Cuban night and all, whatever random critter we had found or caught. Uh, it wasn't really until I moved to Gainesville that I kind of got more into like the serious end of the reptile hobby. Um, as more of a collector or hobbyist or a breeder. And uh, I worked at some of the, the pet shops in Gainesville, and I started to meet some of the people that were in, you know, kind of the, this hotbed of people in Gainesville. And you had uh, you had Bill and Marsha Brandt, and you had uh, Mike Lehman, and you had Joe Hyduke, and you had Doug Foster. You, you had all these guys up there and, and just really cool guys that were really into herps and a lot of them were really successful at keeping and breeding stuff. And that was really, I think, where I kind of got turned on to it more on a, a serious level. And um, Eugene and Cindy Bissett, Bob Guerriere, just a whole bunch of people in that part of Florida that were keeping and breeding stuff on a whole other level that I'd never seen. And um, that was really about the time that I started really building more of a serious collection. And it was it was pretty diverse. Um you know, it, and it wasn't just snakes. It was a whole variety of snakes, mainly colubrids and some of the smaller boas. I was really into Nerodia and sand boas and pituophis and rosy boas. But also I had bearded dragons and I had toke geckos and leopard geckos and turtles. And uh, God, I don't even know. Um, at one point I had a roommate. We had a three bedroom apartment and one whole room was just like a laboratory. And there were just every wall was covered with a cage or an aquarium. And it got kind of out of hand for a while, but uh, I think, you know, that was really where it kind of went from just being a, a pet to more of like a serious hobby. So, I mean, par with the times of how the hobby was at that point, I mean, was everyone just keeping different stuff? Was there a focus on breeding? Were you trying to breed? Yeah, you know, that was when the shows were just really starting to get really big and you had the Daytona show and then you started having over breeding and there were some people that were very focused and my problem was just there were just so many different things everything was interesting so um yeah i was trying to breed a lot of different things some of it was just more for fun i've just always loved toke geckos i didn't really see a, an empire in getting rich on breeding toke geckos but i love the sound of them calling in the middle of the night um so really for me i think the breeding was more serious on the snakes a lot of the other stuff was more just for fun, the lizards, the turtles, stuff like that. Um, and the focus was really sand boas, um, small boas, and, and colubrids. And it was a pretty sizable collection. Uh, I tell the story often that when I met my wife, I had a, 
two-bedroom apartment in Gainesville, and one room was mine, and the other room housed about 200 snakes. And that wasn't even during baby season. And um, the first time she came to my apartment, and I hadn't really told her, and she said, oh, what's in there? And, of course, the door's always closed. And I said, oh, we should probably talk about that. And before the words were out of our mouth, she just opened the door and walked right in, and she kind of looked around and like kind of took it all in and then closed the door. She said, well, that's an interesting hobby. And said, all right, now where are we going to dinner? And we just kept going. So I was like, all right, well, she didn't run out of the apartment screaming. So maybe Wait, there's a future. why wouldn't you tell her? <laughs> well, you know, it's not like exactly something you tell someone like right off that. Like, yes. oh, by the way, I have a room yes. full of 200 snakes. You know, that like, is you what come you over? <laughs> Oh, I told Melissa immediately because I was like, I just don't want it. He, he had to. No, then we can just right. He, he knew if I said like <laughs> ill or like was like, he would have just like probably gotten up and left. Like he he needed to weed weed out the the wimps in the beginning but you're that's talking, just your first lead off question man you just right off the bat like, like literally first date like for, five or like, six like, you know 20 <laughs> minutes into it or something <laughs> well you know on a first date the normal question is like what do you do what you know like all those kind of things so he says his job and he says but i really like well it was hard to explain because i had just quit my hang on a second job. Wait, hang oh. on. I just realized okay. that the lights went off behind me because it's dark out. So I'm going to just override the timer because I think it looks better with the lights on behind me. So hang on a sec. Go for it. So, uh, well, we can answer questions. Jackie. Well, no, oh. I'm just going to explain the story. But doesn't what, you don't think no, Ian I wants to hear it? Oh. <laughs> okay, so while he's gone, uh, Jackie Crowell asked what kind of closures Ian has. Um, it looks like PVC, but who knows who made them? Maybe PVCcages.com? I don't know. They look but, so mean, legit. Uh, they look like cubes, probably 24 by 24 by 24 or 24 by 24 by 36. Oh, no. right. I don't know. We'll have to ask them a little bit later. But okay. when I had, when we were on our first date, like it was literally maybe a week or two earlier. I quit my job in logistics and just decided to deliver things until... I like because I wanted to get serious in uh, this whole reptile thing and like doing all the media and putting time into doing what we do now. So it was at a point where it's like if I just didn't explain my future goals, I would just look like the biggest loser of all time. So I had to get that. He had to have a reason for why he just quit his other job. Yeah. Yeah. So you always got to have a plan B backup story. <laughs> well i'm glad your wife was understanding of your second room yeah she was at that time i mean 200 snakes did freedom breeders start at that point were there were there rack systems how are you keeping well i mean it wasn't like the the stone ages i mean you know we're not talking about that long ago but um <laughs> You know, I didn't have to, like, chisel my snake cages out of, like, granite with, like, you a mammoth there was, tooth. There were barely any shows, so, you know. Um, well, so let me think. This was probably, you know, probably going back to, like, the mid to late 90s is probably when it started. Um, but even back then, I had habitat system racks. Um, I had uh, melamine racks. I had... Um, stacks and stacks of just rubbermaids because the whole room you know ambient temp so there there was equipment available i mean it wasn't quite like it is today but it was still there was a lot of opera there were a lot of choices awesome so 
What was your main focus? I know you said colubrids. Were there any things that you personally um, liked working with in particular? Anything kind of off the beaten path that you don't see around much or very often? Um, yeah, so I was working with a lot of Kandoya back then, um, which they were worse than, than baby chondros to get started. <laughs> um, but the colubrids, I had a lot of, um, a lot of pituophis. And some of the different, you know, like the northern Mexican pine snakes and the, um, the um, some of the the other gophers from out west. But you know, some of the stuff was, I, I think, it's still available today. But you know, it was very niche market kind of things. What I really was into was also some stuff that wasn't really a value issue. It was just stuff that I really liked, which were uh, some of the the Dade County corn snakes, um, which I, I think you're working with, like a Dade County or a Miami phase Okatee kind of variant. So, you know, a lot of those Miami phase or Dade County corns, that's what the corns look like that I used to find when I was a kid. Uh, they have that kind of gunmetal silver, almost bluish background and um, and just a lot of black and white on the belly. So I used to keep a lot of those because those were the corn snakes that I used to find in my area when I was a kid growing up. And then I met a guy who's still a friend. And I just saw him at Carpet Fest a couple weeks ago, um, John Decker. And John was into... He doesn't really like to be called John. We got to just call him Decker. But anyway, he, um, he was into a lot of these different corns that were from some different parts of the Keys. So like even more isolated populations. And I don't know what the, where the taxonomy is. I think they've been reclassified at one point. They were called rosy rats, but another time they were called Keys corns. Um, but anyhow, um, he had some different lines that were from very specific geographic regions, even within the Keys. And so I got into those. And then what I really liked were Nerodia. Um, and obviously there's a lot of Nerodia and they're like a dime a dozen, but what I really liked were the compressor caught Clark guy, which is the, the saltwater mangroves. And those are the ones that have a prehensile tail and you can get them like red and orange and brindle and silver and black and, um, just really cool. And I kept them in naturalistic aquariums just with a big piece of driftwood and a basking light and fed them feeder fish and, what an awesome snake. I mean, easy to take care of. They don't need rodents. They're a great display animal. They're tough as nails and they give birth to live young. So it was like, you know, just the perfect thing. I had a whole bank of aquariums with these different color morphs of, of Nerodia. And so really it was, it was Nerodia, Pituophis, some locality kind of corns, and then a ton of sand boas and rosy boas and candoya. And that was, that was the 200. I'm not I'm not familiar with the mangroves. Are those Florida natives? Yeah, so it's a Florida native. Some people call it the saltwater marsh snake, but there's like a Gulf Coast marsh snake that's a different species. And then there are some intergrades, but this is it's Nerodia compressicata clarki, I believe is may have been reclassified even since since I was working with them years ago. Uh, but they're mainly found just in the like the very southern peninsula of Florida. You can find them in some of the saltwater marsh areas of the, the Everglades, but then down into the Keys. Awesome. So I just want to clarify for everyone, Nerodia is the genus of all the water snakes, you know, a lot of your northern water snakes. And all. I didn't want to ask and sound dumb, <laughs> but I had no idea what <laughs> that was. Why Nerodia? I feel like that sounds like another word. But I don't. I thought it was a cool name for a genus, but I guess. Oh. It, I don't know. I was trying to make the connections in our language. You know, like sometimes it sounds like, but I was like Nerodia. I don't like. Yeah, I couldn't find that. Yeah. 
their water connection. You know, I don't know. Which it's, I mean, something that's, I mean, natives in general, I feel, are very overlooked now in the hobby. Yeah. Where, where a lot of the animals that you kept at that time, were they all imports, like especially like Samboas or even the natives, was it wild caught stuff or were people breeding readily? So Samboas people were breeding back then, um, but it was really kind of before the big morph. I mean, back then we had normals, we had anneries. We had albinos and we had snows, and there were just starting to be some paradox animals popping up, um, and some animals that had more of a striping pattern. But now I think that there's just a ton more available as far as in sandboas even. But I can remember, I can remember just being excited about having and producing hats, you know, het anneries, and then being able to produce my own anneries. And um, you know, I think even then there was there was still a lot available. But this was, you know, like I said, this was like late late 90s uh mid to late 90s was really kind of when this all started and was really getting into the the whole reptile scene yeah that's awesome so what made you um transition and kind of you're into chondros now so how'd you go from 200 snake or 200 reptiles and then to where you are now what kind of happened in between so you know that's a really long story that can be really summed up with two words and that's marriage and kids (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, um, you know, when I met my wife, I was living in Gainesville and I was a bachelor. I, you know, all I had was a car payment. I had no mortgage. I was living in an apartment and uh, I had a good job actually. And, um, so when I met my wife and I decided, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to move to Miami to, you know, to, to see where this relationship goes. I decided I didn't really want to move a collection of 200 snakes. And at that point, uh, I had a full-time job and the reptiles had become a full-time job. And so I was, you know, basically working all day and then snakes all night. And um, I just decided that I wanted to take a break and moving was going to be a big undertaking and life was going to be different in Miami with a relationship and everything else. And um, so I actually pared down the collection really significantly. Um, a large number of the colubrids and, and Samboas actually went to Eugene and Cindy Bissette. And then I sold off big chunks to other people. And um, I mean, it was, a, it was a pretty sizable collection. And then plus all the babies and, and caging and racks and everything else. It was, it was going to be a huge undertaking to move a collection that size. And quite frankly, I didn't want to. So um, I kept a few select things and the rest pretty much we liquidated. And um, then when I moved to Miami, we started, you know, we, we kept a few things still as pets we had some tortoises and we still had the toke geckos and um, some turtles, painted turtles and spotted turtles and just some other things. We're breeding some of them. And um, at that point, I think I just had like maybe one chondro. Yeah, maybe like one chondro, maybe maybe two or three at the most. But I had a friend who was breeding chondros and every time he would have a clutch, I would I would pick a baby out. And um, and sometimes he would have like tough feeders. He'd be like, I'm frustrated with this one, you know, see what you can do with it. And so I, some of those were, I was successful with a bunch of those. I ended up killing, unfortunately. Um, and so eventually I ended up with, I, I had just a small group of conjurers and uh, really time in that period of my life was focused more on breeding humans than breeding reptiles. And so my wife and I, you know, we got, we got married and we bought a house and we had two kids and all the time, these chondros are just sitting in these cages, and they're growing, and they're growing, and they're growing. And um, a lot of those animals were were probably, by this point, uh, probably like seven, eight, nine years old. 
And my wife said, hey, you know, what are you going to do with those things? They're getting pretty big. I said, yeah, I I should probably put them together or do something like that. And um, lo and behold, I ended up with six animals and somehow it ended up being three pairs. And I did three pairings that first year and I ended up with two clutches and thought like, oh, all right, this is this is pretty cool. And um, we just kind of started from there. And it was so it was those original animals that I just grew up very slowly while life had other things going on. And um, and then when we decided to sell or start us and Jay, I got the the go ahead. We sold the last of the turtles. I traded the last Candoya I had for a Chondro. Um, we had a, a great man at King Snake that was like a family pet that um, eventually just died of old age. I think that thing was probably about 15 or 20 years old. And um, so slowly but surely, we just ended up more Chondros and less other things. And um, we actually have a, a rule in the house at the moment, which is nothing in the house that needs crickets or worms. So um, that's already a rule in our plate. Like yeah. before. Yeah, no. That adult comes right after no marriage and no kids, because, you know, that obviously is a detriment to the collection. Oh, OK. That's what you got from that story. Yeah. That, <laughs> that means, that's... <laughs> Ian's also the chosen one because he had pairs when I would have had like five males and one female. And... Yeah, he got real. Were you purposely choosing when nope. male female it just kind of no nope. they were all babies when i got them so they were all unsexed neos and i just they were all from they were all unrelated i think i had two that were sisters that turned out so maybe i got two from one clutch and there were two others that i think were were brothers but not clutch mates so they were from like different years but um no it was just completely random just and, completely and it was out lucky of, yeah it was probably out of like 10 or 12 total that I ended up with six that were adults that ended up being three pairs. And that was how that was how the whole thing started. And then it was just a snowball like rolling downhill and has gotten completely out of control. So I constantly remind my wife when she's like, You're another snake, or you know, like you're not getting rid of these, or you're holding how many back and you go, This is all your fault because if you hadn't told me to put them together, then they'd probably still be sitting in their individual cages now. So um, I remind her that this is really actually her fault. <laughs> see so, see marriage good things yeah yeah whatever yeah uh, this well actually so wait i, I will <laughs> no. i will actually i'll pile on for you melissa <laughs> so one of the things one of the things that is um really cool about the collection today is actually my wife actually helps me a lot so she's got to get some props and if she's not listening in the other room rolling her eyes she'll be listening on the replay rolling her eyes <laughs> but um she actually she does almost all of our social media she does almost all of our marketing she actually does all of the husbandry on the babies downstairs so we keep our babies separate the ones that we're not keeping as holdbacks and she actually cleans them and waters them the only thing she won't do is feed them but it, it gives me a little bit of a break and it creates a little bit of a separation between the adults upstairs and the babies downstairs. So um, she actually does a lot. And the kids, um, my kids are actually now five and seven. And so they actually, um, while they still, when they help, it takes twice as long. They do actually help quite a bit. And um, they enjoy being hands-on with the animals and um, they're, uh, they're right there in it when it comes to cleaning cages or weighing snakes or Pip, the, if I let them, they'd probably pip the eggs themselves. So um, it's it is kind of like a family operation, and that's the part that's really cool now versus when I kept a big collection in the past. Is that you know, I do have someone to help me, and and that help comes in a lot of different ways. And 
one of the things that you'll notice throughout a lot of the reptile industry um, and something, you know, that you can see for years and years and in, in lots of different parts of the reptile industry, it's a lot of couples, it's a lot of couples because it's a lot to do and to manage by yourself. And so you look at a lot of people that are successful in this business, some of the really big commercial breeders, it's, it's almost always couples. Um, and when it's not couples, it's, it's partnerships and it, it's tough to do it all yourself. It's just on any big scale, it really is. Absolutely. I think at some point it becomes like a family farm almost and everyone kind of chips in in their own way. But I, I hate to, to backtrack a little bit, but someone <laughs> had a question just about um, how your experience was with Sambo and kind of how their temperament and keeping goes. So, you know, Sambo is were actually relatively easy to keep and easy to breed. Um, they're a lousy pet snake though. I'll be honest with you. They, um, they hide all the time. So they're, a, they're not a very good display animal. And the thing I used to hate about sand boas is, uh, I actually kept them on sandy chips. So rather than keep them on sand, it's like, you know, little tiny squares of laboratory kiln dried, uh, aspen. And, um, they would bury in it just fine, just like sand. But what used to drive me crazy is I would never know where they were. And if I reached in to change water or whatever else, as soon as your hand goes anywhere above their head, they just, bam, they just latch on. And for a small snake, they got, they got pretty long teeth. And, um, and I just, I, I used to get bit by them constantly and it would drive me crazy. Um, I mean, they are relatively low maintenance. They're not super high metabolism. They generally eat really easily as, as even babies and, they don't get very big. I mean, you know, the biggest sand boas that I ever kept were probably like 30, maybe 36 inches long. You know, they're not, and those are females. The male's even much smaller. So on the one hand, it's a low maintenance animal. It's easy to keep. They're pretty easy to breathe. They're easy to get started, but you're, you're pretty much looking at an empty cage all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that answers his question. I think well, cause he was talking about getting it for his kids. So. Didn't you say you wanted one? Yeah. I really want rough scale sand boas for no oh, yeah. whatsoever. I don't Those like cool Sambo's. They're, they're too or, rubbery or looking for me. What's Calabar? I don't know what that is. They're like, they look like little balls of, I don't even know. How to, not <laughs> that was not a good description. <laughs> they're not attractive by any stretch of the imagination. And their tail looks just like their head. They look. That's why I don't like the Sambo's because they look like one thing. long thing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but um so obviously your wife helps you out a lot because i mean it seems like you're traveling a lot i don't know if you travel for work or something like that i do so my day job um i get i don't know i i, I see it as an opportunity to to travel quite a bit so um so i i cover the southeast region of the u.s for the company that i work for for my day job and um, and then I do a lot of travel outside of even the southeast for different events or meetings or whatnot. So um, so yeah, during the day I, I travel a lot for work. And what's kind of cool about that is I usually try to tie that into something at night or on the weekend that I can do that's fun. And um, one of the things about the reptile community is that it's spread out all over, and it's a strong community. But we spend most of our time behind the keyboard and. Um, as you guys know, it's fun to get out and go to things like Carpet Fest or to NARBC and actually see people and meet people and hang out the old-fashioned way. And so whenever I travel anywhere, I always try to hook up with somebody in the area that's into reptiles. And 
So you'll see that, you know, I post a lot of pictures from different places, different collections that I get the chance to go visit. And it's really cool. Like it makes makes travel for work more fun because I know like, all right, I'm going to work all day, but then I'm going to go hang out with someone at night and drink some beers and check out some cool snakes. And, um, you know, I get to take advantage of, of being able to have that opportunity to do that when, when I travel for work. For For people who even are looking to meet people in their own backyard per se, like how do you make connections with these people so say you're going to like a random place salt lake city how are you asking someone to like give you leads on people that live there <laughs> leads you know? that leads. sounds so weird i don't know how to say it you sound like you're like like promoting some kind of like singles website like are you going to salt lake city are you lonely at night do we need to make a snake harmony <laughs> like... yeah, why not so you know the obviously all the facebook groups and the, the forums are a good place to start i think kind of over time especially in the condor world you kind of learn like you know where some of the different people are obviously there's some some kind of hotbeds colorado maryland texas florida you know i mean there's there's certain areas um where you just know and the other thing is then you also people that you follow that you either you're seeing their pictures or their posts or you're following their 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 page you kind of learn where they're located and then kind of the old default is like hey anybody know anyone in memphis that keeps gtps um so you just kind of throw it out there and it's cool because sometimes you meet one person and they introduce you to somebody else and um i've met a lot of cool people that way and i usually know where i'm going a few weeks ahead of time so i have a chance to kind of scout out the area and figure out who's in that that part of the the country yeah that's awesome now do you get time to get out and go herping or explore the local herptifauna um i have on occasion so a lot of times my work travel is like a monday through friday thing so like just recently i had a trip out to san diego and so i basically flew in on a monday i worked tuesday wednesday thursday friday and then just extended my trip and stayed the weekend and so got to go do fun animal stuff basically like friday night all day saturday saturday night and um those are some of the pictures that i, I just posted some yesterday the day before and i've got a bunch more coming but um you know i just kind of can plan my trip i mean if work is already paying for a plane ticket to and from california um, and they're already paying for a hotel from Monday through Friday. They don't really care if I use, you know, my my Marriott points to stay an extra day or two in California. Now you're you're kind of understating that because you had all these pictures with like raptors and shit, and I was like, what is going on? <laughs> so I haven't really posted a lot of those pictures yet. But one of the people that I hooked up with when I was in California. Um, so there's a, a Condro Emerald carpet guy, uh, Andre Mondin, uh, and he's married um, to, to this really cool girl, Hillary, and they have a kind of like an animal wildlife training facility slash ranch kind of place up in the mountains in Escondido. And uh, they have just an awesome collection, and uh, she does a lot of bird avian uh, training work. And um, so that was actually a funny picture that she posted of me holding uh, an owl. And uh, that owl's name is Guinness. He's a Eurasian, let me get this right, it's a, a Eurasian eagle owl. So it's, I think, one of like the, the larger species of owls in the world. And, um, and so she was actually doing a training seminar the day that I went to visit. And she kind of let me tag along. And they were all 
interacting with the birds and she let me kind of jump in. But yeah, I've got a bunch more pictures from there. They've got all kinds of reptiles and hoofstock and a huge bird collection that includes just all kinds of exotics. So I took some pictures when I was there and I've still got to post those, but um, you should definitely check out, uh, I'll, I'll put a link up to her page. She's got some really cool stuff and they do a lot with uh, behavior training through like the zoological community. And she puts seminars on, I guess, all over the country, maybe all over the world. And uh, it's just really amazing to see some of these birds free flying. So some of the different raptors and birds of prey that they free fly and, and even some of the exotic, the, the parrots, the tropical birds that they free fly. It's, it's pretty amazing to see those birds in that setting. Is that like to train for hunting or for shows or for even like movies or something like that? Do you know, I think it's all the above. So I think it's they they like one of the t- one of the nights when I was out there, uh, they took one of the the birds of prey out, seeing if they could get a rabbit for it. You know, if we could walk and flush the rabbit out, um, we didn't have any luck, unfortunately. But um, I think it's both. I think it's enrichment for the animals for them to be able to go out and hunt on their own and to get that ability to fly around. I think she also does a lot of it for like educational and outreach purposes through like zoos and other facilities like that. And then I think also they do it for, you know, movies and for training for, you know, animal behavior kind of stuff as well. That's awesome. So through your travels and looking at people's collections, um, are there things that you see, whether keeping wise or species wise that you're like, Oh, I got to get into that or I got to adopt that (laughs) practice. Yeah, you know, that's actually one of the really cool things about getting to go out and see other people is, um, you know, like the way that I keep chondros is different than the way other people keep chondros. And um, sometimes it's just these little tiny things that you see or learn that you're like, oh, why didn't I think of that? That's such an easy solution to that problem. Or, you know, that's such a a great gizmo to use for for this application. so, you know, like a good example, last summer I went to visit uh, Rocky Gravely up in Georgia. And um, and he showed me just this like simple little like five cent plastic piece that he uses to to hold his temperature probes in his PVC cages. And previously I used to attach them to the perch with a zip tie or a twisty or tie or something like that. And it was a pain because every time I'd want to pull the perch out, I have to like pull that off or cut it and retie it and and he just had this little five cent plastic cable piece. And I was like, Rocky, this is like revolutionary. It's going to change my life. I went out the next day and bought like five dozen of them and did like every cage in the collection. Cause I was like, you know, how stupid am I to wrestle with the probe every time? So sometimes it's like little things like that. But um, then I, I went to Las Vegas and I, I saw uh, Bill Hughes and fell in love with Sanzinia because those things are just bad to the bone. So like sometimes it's a good thing because you go and you learn something and it helps you solve a problem. And sometimes it's a bad thing because you go and it's like, you know, you're an addict and you just found like some new designer drug. You're like, oh, Sanzinia, I got to have those now. I got to got to have some of those in the collection. So um, so you have to have uh, a lot of self-control. <laughs> I mean, I think that goes with reptile keeping just in general because there's right. like so many reptiles in so little time. But you're it's it's hype because it's like he gets excited just from like pictures, you know and I have Bill to I have to what Bill Hughes. By the way, if I went to his place, <laughs> a birdie told me he has Senicolis triapsis, the Western green rat snake. Yep, well, he does. Aha, rat snakes. Oh, yep. he just was talking to someone about how much he <laughs> likes green rat snakes. So I so, think I saw those actually. Well, if you'd let me finish my okay. sentence, I know, I'm just, I'm trying you're to just see you see how excited he is now. <laughs> He's like foaming at the mouth. Like he, 
I have to talk him off the ledge from like pictures. Like, <laughs> so if he was doing like what you get to do, he'd literally come home with a new snake, probably, you know, if you, well, I don't know if he could, but like, it, yeah, he wouldn't be able to, he wouldn't be able to do that. So you, you have self control to be able to like see and handle and like where you actually get to like interact and then not buy. <laughs> yeah, mostly I don't get to buy, but, um, my wife did ask me. than thou. I see the Corrales <laughs> growing. And- I was going to say, my wife did say to me something the other day. Uh, she said, so, so how many snakes do you have that aren't here? And I, <laughs> I, never, I never did quite answer the question. So breeding loans are a great way around that, just FYI. <laughs> because if it's not in the house, then like, it's not officially part of the collection, right? Oh, okay. Okay. So what kind of breeding loads you got going on? Or is that a is that a hush hush thing or is that a I've got some collaborative projects going, let's just say. So it's hush hush. Who do we talk to? We talked to Forrest this weekend and you guys have also another dream project. Um you wanna talk about that? Yeah, so Forrest uh yeah, he was at the NIRBC down in Arlington which uh, is one event I haven't made it to yet, so I hope to maybe add that at some point, although uh, I keep getting the choice of Southern Carpet Fest. Or this one's out every time, sorry. But um, anyway, so Forrest and I, uh, we've been friends for, for a few years now, and we both share the addiction, I mean, love for chondros. And um, so one of the things that, that he's really into are the the Kofiao locality chondros, so uh, he had the opportunity to get some U.S. captive bred Kofi out from Stan Shiraz a couple years ago. Uh, Stan had been pretty successful producing Kofi out, actually. Um, and so Forrest was able to get a hold of a few of those. And uh, he's got the, the bulk of them. And he sent one of them out to, I think, James Gabriel up in the Northeast. And then uh, he was kind enough to work out a, a breeding loan with me. And he sent the other one here. And that animal is, is just starting to come of age uh, he was in with a a real high yellow Bioc female this year named Killian, and um, they were uh, they were showing a lot of good breeding activity and, and several locks. And she is subsequently starting to go through a little bit of a color change, and she went through what I think was her her ovulation or her mid body swell, and she's currently off food. So fingers crossed. Um, I don't know. Typically, like when they start acting funny like this, it seems like either they lay eggs or they die. Um, the, the symptoms are like pretty much the same, like, you know, acting funny, sitting weird, doesn't want to eat. Like either she's going to lay eggs or she's going to die. One or the other. Um, so positive negatives. <laughs> well, you know, they don't have a whole lot of ways to show you that stuff's going on. Um, but uh, I, things are moving in the right direction. I'm always really cautious at this stage because I'm at the stage where it's like, did did I just imagine that? Is she really not gravid? Is she is she just going through shed or you know? And not only that, but then of course she could lay slugs or infertile eggs or um, you know any one of one of a number of things could go wrong. So I try not to get too exciting excited, but uh, it would be really awesome to produce um, a Kofi Albiak clutch. Um, I did have a, a previous um, pairing a couple years back where we produced some some Jason Stevens uh, animal bred to a Kofi Al female, and same sort of situation. I got really excited, and then in the end, we ended up with with one 
egg that went the distance out of that clutch and hatched. And uh, we still have that animal. That's uh, that's a 2016 animal, but you know sometimes you, everything looks great and you you end up with nothing. So uh, I don't want to get too excited, but that is that's that's one of the more anticipated pairings I had this year. Are there, is there truth to the like feeding problems that I've heard about Kofiaus? Um, well, considering I've only produced that one and it was only a 50% Kofi how it's not a, it's not a very big sample size. Um, I think all chondros can be really challenging to get going some more so than others. Um, I don't feel like I have enough clutches of any particular locality for comparison to say, you know, these are consistently harder than those. I've had some clutches that 100% of them eat before their first shed. I have other clutches that, you know, I get to the point that I'm ready to like flick them in the head and throw them in the freezer because, you know, they just don't want to eat. I have one animal, um, it's actually in a bin over here, a 2015 animal that um, his name is Gecko because all he would eat for like the first six months of his life was geckos. And, um, you know, it's just they're all different. And I don't know if it's really a locality issue. I know, you know, a lot of people have said that Kofi Owls and Arus tend to be a lot harder to get started than some of the other locality types. Um, you know, for me, I, I think to be determined, I, I don't really have a preference. I think some of them are easy and some of them are hard and some of them in the same clutch are easy and hard. And I don't think that I don't have a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it at this point. All right, yeah, I got to ask a question for the fellow locality snobs. Why breed the Kofi out to a Biak? Well, partially because I didn't have a female Kofi out to breed it to. Um, so that's the first thing, you know, I think getting any more additional Kofi out blood into my collection is a good thing. So since I didn't have a pure female ready to pair with him, um, this was a good alternative. And this is a really high yellow animal. Um, there's some suspicion this animal might actually be a podido and not a, a biak, but it was sold to me as a biak. So, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, so Kofi biaks. You're just breeding for high yellow, no matter how the hell it happens. Yeah, you know, Kofi biak. Um, some people call it a canariac. You know, canarian biak. Um, they tend to produce really nice looking high yellow phenotype animals. So it seemed like a good a good pairing. Right. Yeah, that's something that um, I love with just canary yellow chondro. That doesn't change. Now, all Kofi owls don't stay yellow, right? There's only a certain percentage. Yeah, you know, the, the name canary chondro, I think, is a little bit of a misnomer. So, um, and, and there's also, I think, a lot of information about Kofi owl that we don't necessarily fully understand or have the full story. But it seems like of the animals that come in that are labeled as Kofi owl, and I've, I've got a number of them that have come in labeled as Kofi Owl. They look very yellow, and then they end up being a green snake. Um, and some that seem to keep the yellow for a very long time. Even the one that I have that that's from Forest or from Stan Shiraz via Forest uh, does have a little bit of a green wash to it. And um, even the Kofi Owl that turn green typically will have a little bit of a different kind of green phenotypic expression to them. Um, but they don't all stay yellow. Some of them seem to stay yellow their whole lives. It seems a lot of times the females will stay yellow until they breed, and then they'll go through a hormonal color shift and turn you know, less yellow, more of a greenish, bluish color. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I heard Chuck Vogel and, and Rico Walder, apparently, who 
uh, you know, years ago had two of the biggest Kofiak collections in the country that they used to speculate and, and kind of bicker back and forth of like, was it 15% stayed yellow? Was it 25% stayed yellow? But it definitely seemed like it was a smaller percentage or, you know, minority of the animals that kept that yellow their whole lives versus ones that eventually, even if it was later on, once they went through a breeding cycle, turned some shade of green. I don't know if you saw that uh, the DM Exotics video of him and Kofiao, but he did, I did. find a green yep. tree. Yep. Not, you know, necessarily uh, what we would think of a green tree in the where it would be, and then also what it would look like too. Yeah, Dan's got some awesome videos online. Um, that whole trip, that whole series, I think it was like a ten-part series or something. It was some awesome videos, and yeah, he found a, a one on Kofiao Island that looked phenotypically did not look like what we would expect it to look like on the side of the world. And one of those he found it was like, was like curled up hunting on a rock or something. I don't think that was on Kofia that might've been on Sarong or one of the other places that he visited, but a very unusual, I think like two of the three animals were found like, you know, no more than like, you know, a few inches to a foot off the ground and uh, definitely not what you would expect. You'd expect for them to be further up. Yeah, that um, that Kofiao was in like a sad excuse for a bush, like four <laughs> inches off the ground. It was crazy. You want to ask that question? Um, well, there's a couple questions I wanted to ask from the sure. chat. Um, a couple enclosure questions. Okay. Um, D Python Eleven asks if you have any of those plastic clips that you could show. Um, just because exactly? you felt so, there was a revolutionary thing. Yeah, you had one. Um, I could go grab one. I could grab one because it's downstairs next to the fridge where the cold beers are. So I could, <laughs> well, you I could kill two birds beer, with one don't stone. You? Yeah, I could definitely do that. What's the other question? Uh, the other question Which asked about... There's there's multiple. Thank you. I got a piece. So you... <laughs> oh, okay, well, y'all both can't leave. <laughs> you got this. <laughs> okay well the next question was about your enclosures and where you got them from okay so like these enclosures here that are behind me um there's kind of two different designs that you'll see most of these are uh the jim sharphorn cages from pvccages.com um so most of these are the 24 inch cubes and um these have the hinged glass doors as opposed to the sliders. I know there's kind of two big schools of, of thought there. I'm, I'm big on the hinge doors. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the sliders. And uh, then there's some other cages. Let me see, uh, kind of there's some up top there and some of these smaller ones that are like 18 by 24. And those are actually boa file cages. Um, really like the boa file cages a lot. They are um, a little more expensive and, and longer lead times and um, a little more costly to ship because they're, they come fully assembled, but I really like the boat file cages and together they work really well for me just based on height and the size animals I'm working with. What do you like about those rather than the other ones you have? Um, as far as the boa files, what do I like yes. about those? So the thing I like about the boa file cages is that the, the PVC, the PVC cages.com cages from Jim they come unassembled. So first of all, you got to put them together, um, which for a lot of people is not really that big a deal. Um, but because they come unassembled in panels, you got to put them together. Then they also have to be sealed. Otherwise, they leak. Um, and I didn't know that the first time around. So, of course, 
I put them all together and sprayed animals and they leak like a sieve. So, um, so you have to seal them. Um, the other thing is that um, the boophile cages use heavier duty hardware. So um, almost every one of the cages that I have that are the PVC cages, all the little handles have pretty much all broken off. Um, so the, PV, the, the boophile cages are just more substantial. They use heavier duty hardware. The material may be the same or slightly thicker material. And um, the boophile cages are pretty much, they come fully assembled. They're fully sealed. I just tend to like them a little bit better, but they are more expensive. And I think that the lead time is longer. So I think that's probably why the, the PVC cages.com cages are so popular. I don't know if it's a sizing issue. Also, a lot of my cages, I've been fortunate enough to get secondhand. Just we have a lot of reptile people in South Florida and Craigslist is always full of all kinds of stuff. So um, those are what I use primarily for the adults. Um, I don't know if you can see on this side, there's actually a rack over here. That's what I use for for my males, um, that's a reptile basics unit and there's three of them stacked on top of each other. But basically that's what I use for a lot of my male housing because, you know, as you can see, uh, you know, the males spend most of their time in with the females. There's there's a number of boys that are in there with girls right now. Uh, I don't know if you, can, you guys can see, but like this pair over here, like they're all curled up together and there's a, a male in that cage and there's another male up in that cage. So the males pretty much are only spending a day, two, three, maybe a week at the most in those tubs when they're being fed or if they're in shed or if the female's in shed, something like that. I generally tend to house the males with the females, you know, pretty long term during the course of the year. Cool. Yeah, but we can talk for a little bit while he goes and yeah. gets a beer. And the All right. So a beer and you want me to bring the, the example of those, those plastic clips, right? Yes. All right. I'll be right back. Okay. And we can talk. I don't. I mean. Well, I kind of. Um, there, seeing his enclosure back there, there is my. Don't. Oh. We but we always fuck that up and we can never go back. But we'll um, try. Um, his chair is blocking, of course. But there's like a blue female that he has. Yeah, it looked almost completely blue. Over twenty years old too. Well, I forgot he told us that. Yeah. He's never. He's never gotten there to breed or anything. Maybe she's just too old. He's repairing her with a male who is very old, too. But, I mean, she's completely blue. I think she's gone through, like, two or three, um, like, breeders or so throughout the years. And she's produced for everyone. But she may be a little over the hill now. But I, think she's I mean, it looks so from here. We're like, what the hell is it now? Yeah, it looks almost 100% blue. Um, okay, and then someone also brought up, someone else watched, uh, the Dan, Dan's videos, and, uh, he said the one he found in his vlogs were all pretty, like, calm, even at night in hunting mode, which is interesting. I mean... We all say when they're hunt, you know, when they're looking for food, they're, which makes sense. But it's just interesting that the ones he found kind of went against so many of the things we that say. Yeah. Um, okay, but Ian's back, so he can show us. The- oh, and now Joe fucked it up and clicked something. See, I don't. I never know how to go back. Maybe this. So one. I got to tell you, this is. Um, I've done a bunch of these podcasts over the last few months. This is the only one. 
that I feel like encourages the consumption of alcohol during the program. 100%. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't know if you've heard this before or not, but I was talking to Mark Hager earlier today, who I know has been on the show, and you guys know Mark. Um, and I said, you know, for some reason, this show reminds me of Drunk History from the Comedy Central <laughs> <laughs> Network, you know? like it's, like it's like you guys are the Drunk History version of... Uh, of you know reptile podcast <laughs> well mark has probably like my favorite quote on this podcast which is it's all about the stoke it's all about the stoke that's just such all. a mark quote <laughs> if anyone doesn't know he's a wakeboarder and is like the quintessential wakeboard like he's a, he's a bro but like a a cool calm and collected like happy like Makes you feel good. <laughs> yeah. Bro. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. That's a good way to describe him. <laughs> no, Mark's a cool guy. I like Mark a lot. Um, He's also but, like, yeah, I just taller than I thought he was. Until <laughs> he is a tall guy, that's for sure. But yeah, I was talking to him earlier and, and I kind of came to that realization. So you guys, for one of your little promos for one of your upcoming shows, you should do a Drunk History uh, episode. We should. Absolutely. I don't actually watch that show, but I know about it. Now we're gonna have to. I know girl. that that there's that female comedian. She's very popular. That's on it. She's a little short, skinny. She's been on the ro- She's been on like the roast of celebrities a whole bunch of times. Yeah, I think they just always have different okay. comedians doing it. It's like a rotational <laughs> thing. But all right, so these are the cable clamps. Um, it seems like such a simple thing, and I don't know why I had never thought of it. But basically, um, you know, you get them at Home Depot, and there are 18 of them in a package. So these are the quarter-inch variety. So these are the ones that normally you see. They're just kind of white plastic, nothing fancy. But these are the ones that Rocky Gravely turned me on to, and they are black. So they look awesome in a black PVC cage, so they don't stick out like this big white piece of plastic screwed to the back of the plastic black cage. Uh, the same size, they're quarter inch, there's 18 of them. These things are like, I don't know, two or three bucks for the whole package. And literally this is like the best little tip that I picked up along the way. Um, I just attached the temperature probe for the, the Herbstat directly to the back of the cage, pretty much like in the middle um, width-wise of where the heat panel is going to sit. And then just the weight of the the cable and the probe itself, it just kind of dangles there and it's perfect. And then I don't have to attach it to the, the perch because I like to be able to pull my perches in and out. Uh, it's the easiest way to move an animal when you need to move them, especially the males when they're going back and forth. And, and literally this little $2 thing at Home Depot was just like a godsend and was all because I went to visit Rocky and I was like, Hey, what are those things? Where did you get them? He's like, Oh, those stupid little things. I just got them at home Depot. And I took a picture and I went to my home Depot and there they were. It's like the most obvious thing because you're like, I got this cable that I need to clamp down. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And maybe I've like run cable, like in a living room, you don't want to trip over and I've used something like that, but never thought to use it on an enclosure. Yep. And it's perfect. They're just, they're plastic and they're, they're great. I highly recommend them. Home Depot. Yes. Cool. Okay. So the last chat or uh, the most recent question from the chat, um, Jackie asked if there's any rhyme or reason to which babies are red and which are yellow. Well, so 
rhyme or reason to which ones are red or which ones are yellow let's start with um kind of the the classification or the taxonomy of green tree pythons so essentially you have two different species of green tree python the northern variety and the southern variety um, the southern variety they're separated by a big mountain range that runs more or less east west oh did joe just drop something on your foot no 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 it was me sorry <laughs> um so anyway the the southern variety uh tend to have yellow babies the northern variety um can have red or yellow babies as far as what predicts when you breed two animals together um typically if you have a yellow adult uh, if you have two adults that both were yellow as as neos they're generally going to produce yellow offspring if you have two red two animals that both were red neos they're probably going to produce red offspring if you have one of each uh you may get a mixed clutch but you may also get an all yellow clutch or you may also get an all red clutch um the genetics i don't know if, if it's quite figured out if it is i don't i don't fully understand it but um i've actually only produced reds myself out of one clutch and it was a clutch from last year uh it was a little bit of a running joke that i had kind of a an all yellow curse going for quite a while because <laughs> I kept breeding animals together that I thought should produce red or, or seemed like they should, or where I thought that I knew what they were as babies. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that's still a little bit, a little bit left to understand really fully the genetics and, and how you get reds versus yellows. Right. Yeah. Green tree genetics are just like... <laughs> he took a big pause there. We, we just talked about it way too much, and no one's ever had a good answer. So like, I don't want to go into it, because it's always like, I don't fucking know. That's really... It will be an hour conversation on I don't know, you know? <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some people that are smarter than me or have a lot more experience with it than I do, but I can tell you there's, there's not a lot of rhyme or reason. It's one of the things that's so cool about working with them is that you truly... You can breed two animals together, and then you can breed those same animals together a year later and get completely different results. And um, I don't know. Fun, maybe for you. Totally frightening, probably for me. Although <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a giant gamble, but um... and remind me. Okay, one of them between yet red and yellow is more likely to turn green, and one of them is more likely to turn. What's the? Nah. I uh... thought there's a more likely. <laughs> Well, people tend to like red neos, which would kind of be why Ian kind of probably wanted some red babies because people tend to... Because red neos typically change to something, right? Um, So I don't... I I personally don't think that... um, that You know, I think red babies are cool, and I always wanted red babies because I never produced red babies. Um, I think part of the... I don't want to say obsession, but the the desire for red babies is that a lot of very well-known designer lines come from red animals. And a lot of the animals that are really well-known in a lot of designer lines were red animals. Now, part of that is because a lot of those animals were Trooper Walsh animals at one point or another, and Trooper liked red babies. So he used to keep all the red ones and sell all the yellow ones. So by, you know, process of eliminating the yellow ones in his collection, he was always sort of bias towards the red ones and his collection was geared more towards the red ones so then when those genetics were released out into the community they were almost always from red animals that were red babies so some of that i think is just 
the nature of the beast and the way that those different designer lines have developed here in the U.S., but there are some outstanding looking examples of different phenotypes, both with blue and yellow, tricolors, all kinds of different phenotypes that came from yellow neonate animals. And so I think sometimes there's a belief that, you know, true, you know, really awesome high blue animals can only come from red neo animals. And, and I don't think that's entirely true. I think maybe a lot of them historically have because so much of that lineage came from red animals. But I think that there are some amazing examples of phenotypes that, um, that come from animals that were yellow neos. I could imagine that there's a large bias there because when Trooper was producing at the height of producing, he's probably one of the only ones who would keep them alive and keep them <laughs> up to breeding age. So, of course, all the red ones survived. And then it's saying all the nice ones were red neos. It seems kind of like it would be tilted that just because just bias off of him picking the red animals that but sense. the reds are so much prettier i don't know i there's nothing like a, a bright yellow They're snake though so but bright. when do you see that i see the bright yellow in the carpets like granted there's there's other stuff in there but like where else do i get that burgundy beautiful red i'm not seeing that other place that yellow i see on shit all the time <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm generalizing, <laughs> but but that red, that that red, I don't know. I don't see that as often as I see yellow. I have a feeling that if Trooper Walsh loved yellows more than reds, the whole <laughs> community would be turned upside. Like, like I just feel like, like I feel like that one decision in a point of time. Um, He's the or first if, domino in this effect. Yeah, or if or if a lot of the very early animals that came in were red. Were red neo animals instead of yellows, you know what I mean? I, I it's it's just like so many other animals that you always want what you can't have. Um, you know, with Sanzinia, it's everyone wants greens because you can't get them. So I think some of that is is it's just based on some of the very early animals and some of the very early breedings that yeah, it just set the the whole thing in motion. There's definitely so many snakes out there that we like. But normal people would just be like, that's stupid because we like so many. Like, like in chondros, pretty much the best looking chondro is a green chondro. But we see green chondros all the time. So we're like, let's put some black on there. When like a normal person would be like, ew, why are you putting black on this beautiful green vibrant snake? Yeah, I think, you know, if... Um... Yeah, if if the hardest conjure to make was just a green snake, then we'd all be trying to make green snakes. You know, it's uh, it's it's no harder to keep an animal that was a red neo. It's no harder to breed it. It's no harder to get it to eat. It you know eats the same, poops the same, sheds the same, breeds the same. It's just it's it's red instead of yellow when it's born. But, you know, but we because of this, the market dynamics, reds generally fetch a higher price as well. So. No, I think reds are definitely, it seems like a little bit less common, just when you look at just the numbers of animals, both that are imported and produced domestically. So, so some of it is supply and demand, but I agree, Melissa. I think the red ones are awesome. Um, that's why I'm not selling any of mine. <laughs> <laughs> did I mention I'm also a little bit of a hoarder, so. I think, who did we that's talk a, about this? I think we talked about this with, no, with Jason last week. I think we said, or maybe it was at NRBC. I don't remember, but like. All snake people 
are hoarders to a degree, in yeah. some sense. One one person argued with me in the well, not argued, but disagrees with me in the chat because they say that hoarding has a negative connotation and it's like to unhealthy levels. But I'm like, no. It's, but it's if you have the ability to keep things, just like I have random corn <laughs> snakes that like I just have been denying people to buy for 20 bucks <laughs> but it's like i keep them because i have the ability to keep them i can keep them well i know how to keep and them they're not doing right. anything for you but just and pleasure I, yeah. that sounds weird sorry hedonistic <laughs> <laughs> um, but like yeah y'all are all a little bit of hoarders well in for, some for sense. green trees i think it's to his benefit because if you end up with something crazy or you end up with something mundane, either way, you know the end result. And if you have to sell them down the line, they're worth more. I mean, it's kind of a win-win. Yeah. And it's easier to be a hoarder in green trees because you don't know what it's going to look. You know, like exciting. our corn snakes, like, we're like, yeah, we pretty much can tell you what they're going to look like as an adult. You know what I mean? But like, well, yeah. But with him, he doesn't know. So it's like that's a, just a little bit more incentive to, like, that hoarder nature. <laughs> yep. You're using all the excuses I use with my wife, actually. <laughs> it's hard, though. You you just you don't know, and sometimes you think you know this one's going to look like that, and then it doesn't. Um, and I have kept whole clutches back before, and the one that I would have been for sure the one that was going to be the stunner in the clutch was not. And uh, you just don't know, and... Uh, I don't know. Maybe some other people have figured it out, but I can't. I can't. I could look at twenty babies, and I can't tell you what any of them are going to look like. Right. Yeah. It's the same. Like I said before, you talk to enough chondro people, and you realize no one really knows. They try their best, but you can't. You don't know. Yeah. No. I had a clutch. Um, I had a clutch. It's uh, a twenty sixteen clutch, and. I kept about half of that clutch, and when they started changing colors, I don't know, three, four months ago, uh, you've probably seen me post pictures of this one just, like, turned, like, half black. And that thing is just awesome looking, and there was one slight little difference in that one from the rest of the clutch when they were babies, but it was just really in the, kind of like the shade of the pigment of the, the pattern on that one was much lighter than the others. And it was just a very, very faint difference, and I don't know if that was the indicator of what it was going to turn into, but I could have just as easily sold that one. It was kind of a runty one compared to some of the other ones, and so the bigger ones I sold and so were some of the first ones I sold, and I could have just as easily sold this one and not known, and it's just the luck of the draw that it was in kind of the half that I kept. I mean, I see, like, um, I forget what... Uh, locality bills is, but I mentioned it this weekend. We were hanging out with Tony, but it's like that animal. I think it's Wamina, and it was just completely blue. And I don't think anyone would have expected that, but it's like just um, and that produced the sickness, right? And it's like really with chondros, you can have two green snakes and produce blue and black. Like there's no saying what's gonna happen. Yeah, you just really don't know. There's so much variation even within a clutch that um, even the animals are genetically, they should be pretty much identical. They, you know, there's just tremendous variation. That's that's just half the fun. So I guess someone was kind of mentioning, do you, they kind of mentioned cohabitating, which I wouldn't consider it what you're doing. See, like, I would. How, yeah, because you keep them is it seasonal that you keep them together or what's He said going on most of the year. So my adult pairs 
um, together pretty much until something starts going on. Um, so being so far south, you know, I'm in South Florida, so we're subtropics. Uh, my season seems to be much later than, than a lot of guys in other parts of the country. So when you look at like traditional python breeding around the country, they're, you know, they're cooling in October, they're pairing in January, February, and they're getting eggs starting, you know, starting now. And um, for me, it's usually much later in the season. And I've also had really good success uh, when we've had big hurricanes or tropical storms where there's a big barometric pressure change. Don't so, don't wish for that. Wait. No, just just <laughs> just the tropical storm part. I just need to change in the barometric pressure. But you know, I think that with a lot of animals, condors included, you you can pull a lot of levers to stimulate them to breed. I don't think it has to be necessarily just temperature cycling. And being this far south, I'm really dependent on the weather to get cool enough anyway. I mean, you know, even with my wife and kids cranking the AC down at night to like 74 or 73, you know, I just, I can't get the snake room that cold unless we get a real hard cold front. And it seems like every year we get less and less than those and they come later and later in the year. So I just, I, I will just pair them for months and months and months, basically. And as long as I still see that, you know, one of them's not stressing the other one out, like one's not sitting on the ground under the paper, um, as long as they're still showing interest in one another, I'll keep pairing them. You know, I'll separate them for a week or so uh, if one of them's in shed. Um, you know, they're not getting a ton of food, so when I do feed them, I'll separate them for a couple of days. But, um, but they'll stay together sometimes for months at a time. And uh, some of the pairs, they they show breeding activity almost nightly um, and others it takes a while and you, you see nothing and nothing and nothing. And then all of a sudden you come in one night at four o'clock in the morning with a flashlight and you know, they're locked up. So um, I can't remember who it was. I don't know if it was Rico or Eugene Bissett or uh, trooper, but somebody years ago either wrote or said something like, you know, you just keep putting them together until you get eggs. And so that's kind of the the philosophy I take. And, um, so I don't know if it's really cohabitating necessarily. I'm not doing that with my grow out animals. I'm not doing that with animals that are having a year off, but pretty much when I've identified a pair that I'm going to attempt to breed them together, um, they'll just stay together pretty much on and off on that pattern for, it can be six months. It can be nine months. Just depends. Yeah. That's also another question that I stopped asking how to breed green tree pythons. Cause everyone's like, you throw them together until they do something or don't do something. Like, well, but how does that work with putting, uh, like multiple pairings? Like, if they've been together a lot, run males through, right? Like, how does that work with that? Well, you know, so it differs a lot from so with colubrids, a lot of times you can do that, right? Like, you can have one stud corn snake and it might breed a whole stack of females, you know, you might run that male through six or eight females and. He's got it in him. He might double clutch all those females, and just one male can get that job done. He's got some some great uh, <laughs> shit. I was gonna do a joke, and I forgot the name. What do you? He's double dick down and <laughs> no. Okay, I wasn't going that far. I was trying to give the name for the soldiers. That's it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> It's not funny if you have to explain it, Melissa. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Come on. I fucked up. Okay. Sorry. You go. So. Um, well, now I lost my train of thought completely. <laughs> so you're, 
Did I lose you at double dick downing? I think, I think that's where you lost me. So the thing with conjures is, um, well, it, it's kind of two things that, that that I've noticed. So one is some males are just good breeders and some are not. I mean, I think that's true with a lot of animals. Um, but even more so with conjures, like some males like certain females and not other ones. And I, it shouldn't come as a huge surprise to us because – most guys, if you locked them in a room with a female, you know, they would only say yes to like 98% of the females, not 100% of the females. So there's always going to be like that 2% that we're like, no. Um, but I think some males are just more compatible with some females. I don't know if it's um, the females are receptive or they're putting off the right pheromones, but I have literally, and I've talked to other people who have experienced the same thing where you have a male and a female, and you put them together and nothing and nothing and nothing. And then you put a different male in and he's on her like in two seconds. And it's like, well, the female couldn't have been putting off different pheromones in an hour ago, you know, but this male wants to breed and that male doesn't. And then you put that same male in with a different female, and then he wants to breed. So sometimes I think it's compatibility. But the thing about conjurers and this, the thing about conjurers in general is you can't, there, there is no in general because any rule you give for conjurers, there's always an exception, it seems. But a lot of conjurers, at least the ones that I've worked with, the males will fast during breeding season. And uh, and sometimes they'll fast for a long time. So I'm talking five, six months at a time. And it takes a huge toll on those animals when they don't eat for that length of time. And so I think part of the reason why you don't see people running one male through multiple females is because it takes a lot out of those males. And so you really want to be sure that he's gotten the job done before you move him to the next female. Um, you want to make sure soldiers are good, Melissa. Um, <laughs> but the other Sorry. the other side of the coin is that one of the things about the chondro community and chondro keepers in general is we are almost fanatical about record keeping and lineage. So you really don't want to put a male in with another female. You know, you want to you don't be swapping males around. You want to know for sure that's the male that that you know is the father for that clutch or sired those eggs. Um, so that's why a lot of times you'll see just one-to-one -one breeding. I think that's also the reason why in conjurers, a lot of people undervalue males, especially adult proven breeder males. Um, in a lot of species, it's the adult proven breeder females that are really valuable. And people just kind of discount, oh, it's just a male, and like kick them Girl out the door. Power. Yeah, but um, <laughs> I think a, a proven breeder... A proven breeder adult male chondro, especially one that's a good breeder that'll breed like, you know, a piece of rope if you if you let them, um, you know, those are the ones I mean, you want those males in your collection. And uh, I have a number of males right now that that currently have the year off, they have no, no planned breeding, because it's like, I know these males will breed, these are my good breeder males. But I want to let this other male have a shot, because that's the genetics I really want. So I've got this, these other two kind of waiting in the wings, if if the first guy doesn't get it done, I know I can go to him, but you know, it's just not the genetics I want or not the pairing I'm looking for. And so I actually put a lot of value on not just proven breeder adult males, but good breeders, you know, consistently good breeders. And now as far as, so the males, you're kind of using them as far as they're not feeding. So you're looking at body structure, stuff like that to be like, okay, this is when I'm going to stop you know, pairing him with females. That's the only reason why you would take him out. Well, you know, if I feel like he's really losing a lot of weight, miraculously, a lot of times they, they don't look really like they've lost a whole lot of weight until you really, you pull them out and you weigh them or you, you handle them and you feel how much mass they've lost. 
Um, but yeah, if they're looking, if they're starting to look like, you know, they really need a meal in them, um, I will definitely separate them. I generally will separate them anyway because I want the females to be able to eat in peace. Um, I don't feed in the same cage. I know a lot of people will do that, especially when the males are off feed. I always separate. Mm. I have had some accidents with a, a female grabbing a male. Um, just unintentionally because of the food response. So I always separate when I feed for both of their sake. I also will continue to offer males food on a regular basis, even if they haven't eaten in weeks and weeks. Um, on the one hand, um, you just, you never know when that male is going to just flip the switch and decide to eat. Sometimes, you know, they might fast for six months, but they might eat once in the middle. And so I'll still offer food because you just never know when you're going to get that animal in the right mood or it's just the right feeding response. Sometimes I think they almost grab it by accident or defensively and they're like, oh, I'm already here. Let me just eat it. Um, so I will continue to feed them. Um, there's actually – it's a double-edged sword though because that's actually the way that I took the worst bite ever from a chondro. And that was from a male that hadn't eaten in like five or six months. And I had become complacent, and so I would offer him food every time I would separate them. I would offer him food, and I had done this repeatedly for several months, and it was a very, very large adult male sarong. It was probably, I don't know, twelve to 1,500-gram animal, a big six- or seven-foot animal. I'd raised it from a baby. It was perfectly perfect animal and never tagged me nothing. It was not aggressive, and I went to feed it, and it hadn't eaten in probably five or six months. And because of that, I had gotten very relaxed with it, and I was using way shorter hemostats than I should have been using. Um, I should have been using something like you know 24 inches long, and I was using something that was probably 10 inches. And I was like, oh, he's not going to eat anyway. I'll just I'll just offer him. And that was the day he decided he was ready to eat, and he shot right past the rodent, grabbed my hand, uh, full on feeding response, top jaw, bottom jaw lodged in mm. my hand, break. Yeah, wrapped my whole arm up to the elbow. Uh, I mean, just it was it was bad. Um, I probably should have gotten about half a dozen stitches for that. And um, lesson learned that even when they haven't eaten in five or six months, sometimes today's the day that they're going to decide to eat, and they'll go off feed almost just as much as quickly as they'll go back on feed. But I have some males that are very consistent, and they'll go off feed around October, November, and they won't eat literally for five or six months at a time. Yeah, I mean, if anyone has. Um, if anyone doesn't know how big an adult condo teeth are, use Google. <laughs> we'll fuck you up. What were you going to say? Whoa. Okay. I was wondering, so since, you know, you, you have them together, but you separate them to feed, you said when they're in shed, all those other things. So do you feel like because you do that, you handle them more than some others might? Yeah, I guess that would be the question. Are you hooking them out or are you actually? Like, I mean, I know you're probably just like, when you're feeding, you just you just put it. In, you put it, it's not like you're really like playing with them, so to speak. You're just tra- transferring them. But uh, that was just what I was wondering. Yeah, so that's part of why those little cable clips are so handy. Because typically, if I'm moving a male from his cage to a female's cage, I just take the whole perch and stick literally the whole perch with the snake on it right in the cage, um, and then I'll just lean the perch up against an, uh, you know another part of the cage, and they crawl off when they want to. Um, and then I kind of do it in reverse. I leave that purchase laying on the bottom of the cage. When I want to pull him out, I'll just take it and use that to kind of nudge him onto that perch. And then I move him back to his cage. Most of my animals during the day are, are very handleable. Um, unless I've got a tray of rodents sitting out in the room and they're already in food mode for the most part, I can reach into their cages anytime. Um, you just have to really be 
cognizant of their body behavior, you know, their body language. Uh, Eugene Bissett always says, be a student of the serpent. You just got to watch. I mean, if, if the snakes are hanging with their head down in an S position and they're looking at you, sizing you up, you probably don't want to reach in for the water bowl, you know? Um, but if they've got their head hidden under their coil and they're up on the top perch, you probably can do anything you want in that cage. And that snake's just going to want to be left alone more than anything. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, people constantly ask me about, you know, are they handleable? I saw your video that you did the other day, Joe, about, you know, can you handle your green tree python? Did I fuck I it think, up? Did I not? <laughs> no, no, you did, you did perfect. I think okay. it, it's one of the most common questions I get is like, oh, do you have any arus? Because I hear arus are the best ones for beginners because they're the most calm or, you know, I don't want a biak because biaks are all nasty. And, and I think... Um, <laughs> all nasty? At, what? Well, at, at NARBC, we saw a um, a sarong about the size of a half dollar that was sexed already. So, um, you know, I'd like to handle that one, bring it home, um, had only a few carriers on it. <laughs> Stop. Well, when, whenever whenever people ask me, like, you know, I'll post animals or something. Which is the which is the most docile one? I want one that doesn't bite. I want the Kamas one, and I always tell them I keep those in the freezer, and I only charge half as much for those. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing about baby condors, I love aggressive, nippy, bitey baby condors because those are the ones that eat. Um, and to me, the most important thing is that they eat, not that they're you know easily easy to handle necessarily. Um, but I think that condors are just like anything else; they're all individuals, and so. I just told you the story. The worst bite I ever took was from a sarong, and it was a U.S. captive bred sarong, and I raised it from a baby. It wasn't because it was a sarong. It was because, you know, it was the situation was why it bit me. Um, I've seen some import arus that are just puppy dog tame. I've seen some arus that'll rip your face off. I've got one downstairs that she's a beast. I don't know what her deal is, but she does not like people. Um, same thing with biocs. Most biocs tend to be imports. Most of them tend to not like people. Uh, but if you plucked me off a tree and shoved me in a water bottle and trekked me through the jungle and then <laughs> shipped me in a box out of Jakarta halfway around the world to a warehouse in the U.S. and then stuck me in another container and put me in a show, I, like, yeah, I probably wouldn't like people either and I'd want to bite them all. So I think part of it is keeping in perspective, you know, where these animals are from and, um, they're all individuals. I think some of it is just their background and their history. I think a lot of times they tend to calm down once they get used to their surroundings. I think a lot of them, like other snakes, they tend to be sort of cage aggressive because they've got a very strong feeding response, which again, I think is a good thing. But I think as long as you're reading their body language, most of our animals are handleable. My kids handle a lot of our animals on a regular basis. Now, having said that, there also are animals that are just they just don't like people. We have um, actually two animals. So there's one, I think it's actually this one back over here. So that one was 1506. And for whatever reason, out of that clutch, that one always used to bite me when it was a baby. And my wife used to think it was so funny. She'd be like, oh, you're doing number six again? And I'd be like, yeah, how do you know? She's like, because that's the same one that bites you every time. And so, I don't know, that one kind of earned a place in our heart. We named it six and it got to stay. And uh, we've got one in the new clutch downstairs, uh, one of the fall clutches from last year, and uh, it bit my son. It was the day we were separating them out from their egg container, and, you know, they're just, like, a couple days old, so they, they can't even really break the skin. So it scared my son more than anything. He's only five, but, you know, he went right back to it, and he, he was a champ about it. But that one snake, for whatever reason, is really feisty, so that one's name is Feisty Pants. 
Um, so, <laughs> and this is what happens when you let five and seven year olds name animals is you end up with animals named feisty pants and six, but, um, that one is a, is one animal out of a clutch of, I think 12 and the other 11, no problem at all. Feisty pants, that thing strikes at the front of his tub every single time anyone goes near it. And I don't know what the deal is. It's just that one has a bad attitude. So I think sometimes it's really more about their their individual personality and what the history is on that animal or what they've been through. Um, I don't know that it's always necessarily whether it's an import or a U.S. captive bred or whether it's an Aru or a Biak. I think a lot of times it's just a matter of, you know, what has that animal been through in its life and does it think people are good or bad, basically? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen recently, um, two days ago, I was like, it's about time to feed or to change the water. But he was, by the time I got around to changing the water, I don't, know, I don't know if you remember, I was cleaning all the snakes and then I came back to the to the green tree. And then I went to go reach in. I was like, eh, tonight's not the night to change the water because he came out at me. And then like this morning he was facing the, he was facing the other way. So I was like, this is perfect. So like he faces the other way. I clean his water bowl. He doesn't even notice him there. And that's good. And that's how I usually judge when to go in there. It's weird because like, I've never seen him bite you. I can't even remember if you've told me a story about him biting you. You may have, but like, I'm, he still makes me nervous. Like, and I, I don't know if it's because they get a bad rep from people and it's just like in my head or I see how much he like, no, goes out. If that makes like, right. Yeah. At night I open the, I open the front, the sliding glass. uh And And so it's like, I think, that in my head has made me like kind of well, nervous about all Haven green trees. Handle them, which is like how old is she? Right, like but you, she's still. Uh, it still kind of was going. I don't know something. As They're much as I like green trees, how they look, I mean, it still makes me. I don't know, Ian, if you've ever seen. I've never seen one that enjoys being handled. Every time I try to get mine off and I try to get off the perch, it just tries to run away. Yeah, you know, I think if you want an animal, a snake that you're going to be able to handle a lot that enjoys being handled or tolerates it is not going to be stressed. You know, green tree is probably not the number one choice. Um, you know, they, they really are more of a, a display animal and it's not so much because you can't handle them, but really the big enemy with green trees is stress of any kind. And obviously they, they are not seeking out human attention. You know, they don't want to come chill on the couch with you while you're watching TV eating pizza. You know, they, they may put up with it. They may tolerate it. But they really don't want to. Um, so I think you know if you're if you're looking for an animal that's going to be a lot more hands on, you should probably look at something like a ball python or you know even a corn snake is is an animal that's a lot easier to handle. Um, it's not that you can't handle conjures, um, but for their sake, quite frankly, when they're little, they're so delicate that they can easily be injured. And when they're older, it's just it can be stressful for them. You know, you're pulling them out of their environment. Even when you look at just their body structure, you know, they really want to be wrapped around something. They're just not, they're not really comfortable being handled um, the way that we want them to. Yeah, when you see your um, green tree in the enclosure and it's really perched up perfectly all the time, every time, then you take it out and it's always cruising around you and doing stuff, like, it's clearly not comfortable. But it's just so weird how it sits still. For 99% of its life, and, and then you touch it, and it decides to, you know, act yeah. like it's so energetic. It's, it's very unnatural for them, I think, to be out at that point. But someone wanted your opinion 
on Carpondros. You know, um, Carpondros, I think it's pretty dividing kind of subject. People seem to either love them or hate them. And I was never really much of a fan of the hybrids until last year when I went to Texas for Southern Carpet Fest and got the chance to go over and visit with Tony and Melissa Jerome. And and man, Tony's got some awesome Carpondros and those things. uh, I mean, they're not as cool as his Papuan, uh, don't get me wrong, but... Um, but those things are really, really nice. And, uh, I guess I, I hadn't seen a lot of Carpondros that were really young and I, they're obviously a lot bigger now than when I saw them last year, but they were just, the patterns were so crisp and so clean and, um, they were really, really stellar looking animals. And I have to admit for like about maybe half a second, I thought like, Oh, I, I might be able to keep one of these. And, and then reality kind of like came back. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. It's a Carpondo. I can't have one of those things. Forget yeah. it. <laughs> so, um, they, they are cool. And I, I know Bill Stiegel's got a few of them and actually I saw some nice ones up at John Martin's in New Jersey about a month or so ago. So they are really cool. Um, and some of them are, are absolutely beautiful. And I know that there's, you know, some, some thoughts about naturally occurring hybrids in the wild and, and whatnot, but I don't know. I guess I'm more of a purist. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not big on a lot of the hybrids. Same thing. Like even in the Corralis world, like some of the, the Caninus and Batesi uh, hybrids of the Corralis. I, I know I just, nothing about you're speaking alien. Uh, Northerns uh, and basins. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm just, I'm a little more of a purist. Talk to your heart. boy Forrest. He said, he's so is he going to get up. into some emeralds? Well, I wanted to tell that guy that we're going to have Tony on, so we're going to have a whole Carpondro show, so we'll nice. get all into the weeds on that. I need to get his name. But his thing is just go... H2749. Yeah, yeah, but he's on all the he's time. He's on all the time. And he knows <laughs> shit. I need him to tell us But, but Ian, all right, Sorry. Corrales, what are you... I see you kind of gaining some Corrales. What's going on? Um, so remember earlier when you asked about like what happens when you go visit people and see <laughs> other stuff. And so I, I really have to say it's really, it's really two people's fault. It's, uh, it's Bill Hughes and, and Keith McPeak. Um, they're kind of like, like double trouble. And, um, I, I tell Bill, he's like the dark emperor of the dark side of the force. And <laughs> he, uh, I went out to see him and he's like, he's like, these things are awesome. Check them out. And, and then he's like, he's like, and not only that, but they're so much cooler than conjurers because you don't have to deal with eggs and you don't have to deal with incubation and, and they just you don't have so to cool. worry. You don't have to worry about them dropping eggs in the water dish. And, and not only that, but the babies are like 10 times the size of conjurers and they eat fuzzies right off the bat. And you don't have to tease feed them for like five hours to get them to maybe eat a pinky head. And, so he's, he keeps whispering in my ear all these awesome things about Corrales. And, and then I start talking to Keith McPeak and go visit him and check out his collection. And like between the two of them, it's like East Coast and West Coast. And they're both Corrales, Corrales, Corrales. And, and I just I couldn't help myself. And so that is the cheaper alternative. If you're at Keith McPeak's and you don't go home with a Boland's Python, I'd say that's a win. Well, you know, he didn't have any Boland's pythons available, and I couldn't exactly fit a nine-foot snake in my pocket. So um, there wasn't really much opportunity to go home with a Boland's at Keith's house. But, uh, you know, the Corrales are just incredibly appealing for 
for a lot of reasons. I think just like any other reptile keeper, they're new, they're different to me because um, I haven't worked with them in the past. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, I've done rosy boas and I've done sand boas and I've done candoya, but I haven't done any corrales. Uh, I've never I bred any of one them. That quite wants to bite off my face yet, so <laughs> there is that whole that whole aspect to things in terms of the hardware that they're they're carrying around. But um, it's also the fact that there's multiple species of corallus. Um, you know, you've got Amazons and you've got Northerns, you've got basins, you've got blacktails. There's just so many different varieties, and then even within um, you know, even like within Amazons, there's just so many different. Uh, naturally occurring phenotypes and then different morphs that are being worked on or, or different, um, I don't know if they're even called morphs in Amazons or not, but um, just different colors. You know, you've got the hypos and the mangoes and the tigers and leopards and calicos. And, um, and even within uh, caninus, you've got anaconda phase and you've got uh, some of the high white just so there's just so okay, many different I varieties. I have no idea all that existed. Like I just like seeing the emeralds that well, have the big white. Of, um, <laughs> like if you remember, like the crested gecko show, especially the tree boas are very, you know, Amazon tree boas, hortolanus. Are you? Are they both very... in corallus? ATBs and emeralds yeah. are both corallus. Yep. But like an annualism. <laughs> yep. But I mean, like. They're more like crested geckos, where you're like, you get a garden face, you get a red, you get a yellow. It's just like different little. If you have a captive born um, animal, you're going to get a whole litter of these different things. And they're not necessarily morphs, unless you're talking about the tigers. And then apparently yep. Patrick told me about there's leucistics out there or something. So. Yeah, if you breed a hypo to a hypo, you can make a leucistic. There's also calicos, there's also uh, mangoes. There's also leopards, and then you've got all of these other yellows, bicolors, reds, gardens, t- um, Halloweens. I mean, just all these different varieties of, of different colors. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's exciting because it's different. And it's, um, they're, they're kind of similar to the way you keep other arboreals, but um, I, don't, I don't know, it's, it's it's kind of like you get to a certain point where you're like another cage. You're like, oh, it's another chondro. Oh, it's another chondro. Oh, it's another chondro. You're like, oh, thank God, I open this drawer and it's an emerald tree boa. It's you just um, sometimes you need a little bit of something different. And it's ironic because I went from having a very diverse collection uh, when I was in Gainesville, and then when I really decided to get back into breeding, and I said I'm gonna for the first time. Pretty much in my whole reptile keeping career, I'm going to be extremely disciplined. I'm going to work with one species. And granted, green tree pythons, two species. But, you know, I'm going to work with one animal exclusively. Uh, And, you know, there's so so much variety even within green tree pythons. You really can't keep them all. But um, for several years now, I've been – it's like monoculture, you know, nothing but chondros. There's no other snakes in the house and very focused, very dialed in. And I think that's partially why we've been successful and, and consistently because we've got the ability to be very dialed in. But then what happens is then you start, a, you start kind of getting a little bored and you're like, well, now I want something that's not a chondro, that's not a green snake, that's something different. So the pendulum is swinging back the other way a little bit. So um, we do have a number of Corallus projects going now, both uh, Caninus and, and Hortolanus and, and Russian Burgeri as well. So, um, so stay tuned. There are some exciting things coming. We've also got some Sanzinia projects going. 
So the Condors aren't going anywhere. I know I'm going to take flack from the Condor Morelia guys about, you know, going to the dark side and playing over there with Corrales, with Keith and, uh, and with Bill. But, um, but it is exciting to get in on some of these other projects and to work with some other species. And it'll be a few years until we're probably consistently producing or selling any Corrales, but it is exciting to be working with something just a little bit different and, and new. Yeah, Let's I'm, get an emerald from Ian. I've seen, I've seen this play out. What you do is say, <laughs> I have green tree pythons. Now I'm just going to keep, you know, we do our boreal pyth- or our boreal snakes here. We do our boreal stuff. And then you get your Sanzinia. Then you're like, this is halfway to like a normal boa, Dominican red mountain, <laughs> this type of boa. And it just <laughs> stems out. That's how it goes. You know, the, the one thing is that I'm very limited in terms of space. So that's why the Tetris game behind me of maximizing the cages on the walls. So the, the one limiting factor for me is really space. And so I, I can only keep stuff that I can fit in the caging and the tubs and the racks that I have. So I don't see myself branching out into like anacondas and berms and, you know, and things like that. Um, I mean, there are some other things in the arboreal world that, that maybe I might dabble in at some point, but, for now, I'm going to be pretty content just arboreal boas and pythons. And, and I mean, I'm not even looking to get into like Candoya again. There's a whole there's a whole other genus of animals. I mean, viper boas and, you know, Isabella's. And I mean, there's just all kinds of cool stuff from that part of the world as well. But um, only so many cages available and um, only so many hours in the day. Yeah. I mean, we had talked to Austin about it because he just bought a northern um, emerald and you know, something that we were talking about is that they're actually much larger in a sense than green trees as yeah. far as um, even, even they're, Amazon tree They're girths. They have bigger girths. Well, no, they're longer and, yep. you know, similar girths. So it's like you kind of need, especially Amazons, I find to be less arboreal than we probably think of them to be. But mm-hmm. at least with my very limited amount of keeping. <laughs> but. But it's something I guess to consider if you're Don't considering, you, you know, to go on from green tree pythons. But emeralds, emeralds. I told someone in the chat, someone, uh, well, H two seven four nine, who still won't tell me his name, um, said, asked when you're gonna get your scrub python, and I said that maybe when, when I uh, when Scott Borden produces Moluccans. But anyway, oh no, no uh, 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 I was talking. <laughs> I said maybe I'll let you get your scrub when I get my emerald. I, I was connecting okay, yeah, it back. We can get both. I was, I was connecting. <laughs> there you go. Get them both. I, I wasn't doing a sidetrack. I was connecting it back to this okay. conversation. So don't cut but, me off. Well, really, what I want to get to is that Ian's been to Central America, and I want to ask him where he's been and if he heard from there. So yes and yes. Um, so I enjoy field herping just as much as I enjoy herpticulture. Um, in some regards, it's you know it's it's almost more fun because you don't have to clean up after them. Um, but I've had the opportunity to travel extensively, you know, here in the U.S. and and do some herping around the country. But I also had the chance to make a couple of trips so far down to Central America. So um, I've been down to Costa Rica on the Pacific side three, on three different occasions. And there's a gentleman named Jim Caveney. Uh, so he was a big breeder in Florida back in the 80s and 90s. Um, he did a lot of colubrids and, and other things. But he now runs, I think it's twice a year, 
a trip down to Costa Rica specifically for herpers. And um, so I went on that trip. It was actually, I went with a couple of friends over a four-year period. We made three different trips down there. So probably somewhere in the vicinity of about, I don't know, I would say probably close to about 30 days in, in Costa Rica over a four-year period. And um, this was all before marriage and kids and mortgage and all of those sorts of things. But um, it was it was really an awesome time. I mean, it was it was like a, an adventure in and of itself, just the whole trip. But getting to see some of the animals in the wild, getting to put your hands on some of the animals in the wild. Uh, we did find uh, Corrales Russian burger eye, which is the black tail tree boa. Um, I kind of wish I knew then what I know now about Corrales. Um, but at the time, we actually thought it was an annulated, but annulated are, are only found on the, the Caribbean side of Costa Rica. So it was actually a blacktail. Um, <clears throat> and I realized I haven't posted that picture in quite some time. So I'm going to have to dig it out and post it maybe on Instagram or on Facebook. But uh, we, we did find a lot of Central American boas, a lot of fertile lands, um, just all kinds of, um, of different snakes, uh, tons of amphibians, turtles, lizards seen we saw just all kinds of mammals and birds it was it was really a pretty amazing trip um the uh the guy that that organized it like i said jim caveney he's been going down there for years and uh believe it or not one of the most effective ways to find stuff even down there was road cruising so um there was this one road that we would cruise at night that was right along the coast and we i mean everything from cayman to tamanduas to all kinds of frogs to every imaginal species of snake we found um uh, on two different occasions we found the bromeliad boas uh which those are fairly uncommon to see and to find those just road cruising in the middle of the road is pretty amazing uh eyelash vipers um yeah just i mean just all kinds of animals and uh it was really pretty amazing to see some of the animals that you see in the pet trade in the wild um dendrobates erratus red-eyed tree frogs the ones that you can't Um, actually handle yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, what's funny is that you know those things are they're really pugnacious and they're out in the middle of the day. Uh, probably one of my favorite frogs, the smoky jungle frogs. Those those are really cool, and uh, I didn't realize until the first time I went down there their their alert call. So when you when you grab one of those things in the middle of the jungle at like one o'clock in the morning, it sounds like you're like ripping a baby in half. Um, like literally the the alarm call of those smoky jungle frogs is just something to behold. It literally sounds like you're murdering a sheep in the middle of the night. It just uh, it's unbelievably um, Wait, loud. What, what is it? What are they? Smoky what? Smoky jungle frog. It's kind of like it's like the equivalent of like a South a Central American bullfrog. Basically, it's a very large large like terrestrial frog um but yeah it uh i I definitely encourage people you know get out and herp when you can wherever you go i mean a lot of places i travel even here in the u.s um when i went out and saw bill hughes actually in las vegas he took me out one night and we found a few snakes out in the desert and i've been uh herping out the san gabriel mountains and California when I've been out there on business and a little bit out in Colorado when I've been out there. So whenever I have the chance, I always try to get out because, you know, the, the, the fauna is totally different in Florida than it is in other parts of the country. Is it true that like eyelash vipers are the most commonly seen snakes there in Costa Rica? Um, I would say actually the fertile ants seems to be a lot more common. So you know, the, fer- the fertile ants is, um, 
I, 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 you often hear it referred to as the most deadly snake in Latin America, and not necessarily because it's got the most toxic venom, but because it's it's very pugnacious. It reproduces readily. They have very large litters, and they seem to be found especially around human, you know, habitat or um, you know areas that, that people are are living in because they're attracted to the rodents that are left by the people, and so a lot of times when we would find uh, fertile ants in, in Costa Rica, they call it the torciapello. Um, when we would come across them in the road, if other people saw us, they stop, stop and start yelling at us and, you know, tell us that we were crazy gringos, basically like, get away. Like that, <laughs> that's dangerous. And you know, they want to kill them. They want to kill every single one of them because the, the torciapello or fertile ants, I mean, it kills people, it kills cattle, uh, really bad tissue necrosis from the bites. Mm. Uh, people lose digits and limbs, and it's it's a nasty, nasty, nasty bite. And apparently, because they're they're fairly common and they're very pugnacious, um, you know, they they'll stand their ground and they'll come right into human civilization. And they they like to be around people, and so that makes them a really dangerous, dangerous animal. And I would say that was probably one of the most common species we found there. Interesting. So I really wanted to play the call for everyone. And this partly has to do with the fact that we've had three beers, but he wanted to. Yes, that is the smoky jungle frog. (laughs) It sounds to me like a broken dog toy. Like on high pitch, like a. But it's really loud in the middle of the jungle at night and it echoes. It's it's really, really loud. And then uh, Gustavo said that he has some connections, I guess, in Colombia, and we can do a trip to Colombia if you wanted to and find some <laughs> anacondas. Which... I'm always nervous whenever someone tells me they have connections in Colombia. <laughs> That's what I. <laughs> so here, here's an he interesting said, he fact said I about know people for business. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, everyone knows people for business in Colombia. Um, <laughs> Do you guys watch that show, um, the one where they're like searching for um, uh, Escobar's, uh, Pablo Escobar's millions in Colombia? Have you seen that? No. Gustavo's cousin? Gustavo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, is, is Gustavo's last name Escobar? Um, <laughs> all right. So, I, I, it's very, very short tangent. So, apparently, you know, Pablo Escobar was like multi billionaire drug lord. Apparently he was making like, I don't know, something ridiculous, like $60 million a day. And he didn't know what to do with all the money. So he spent it on like all these lavish things in Colombia and also apparently buried tons of money all over the place. So one of the things that he did is he had his, he had several private zoos of his own and he brought in all these exotic animals. So I was watching, there's this show, I think it's on Discovery or History Channel, where these CIA guys are trying to find all the buried money. So wait, this is so, not Narcos. This is something different than Narcos. Yeah, this is this is like told. This oh. is like pseudo documentary on Discovery Channel. I don't know if it's really a documentary or if it's like you know a made up documentary. But so they're going up the river to like search some area near one of his former like uh, haciendas that had some of these exotic animals. And the guy in the boat tells them they have to be really careful because there's hippos in the river. Well, this is in Colombia, right? Well, it turns out that he had hippos at his zoo. And when he, when the government finally arrested him, all the animals were pretty much like left to their own devices and set free. And the hippos have set up a feral population of hippos in the river in Colombia, even though they're not native. So imagine like these fishermen are going in these little dugout canoes and, you know, there's like 2000 pound hippos running around and hippos kill more people in Africa than anything else. So it's no joke. What? Yeah. 
most dangerous animal in Africa. What? Yep. I never Charge would think that. More oh, yeah. than like lions and tigers and bears. And bears. <laughs> yeah, mostly bears in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more than reading. elephants, more than uh, lions, more than Nile crocodiles, more than all the venomous snakes. The hippos are the most dangerous animal in Africa. I feel like they don't get the the rep that all the other ones. Like we don't view them as. Yeah, because you don't see them really that much because you're in America. You're America in Texas. America skew everything. <laughs> yeah, we don't know not that. a lot of hippos in Texas. <laughs> I mean, there's not lions and there's tigers a, there either. There are more but... tigers in captivity in Texas, though, than there are in the wild. So that's important to know. But, but that's just our laws being fucking stupid. But anyway... Um, I've been reading Paul Rosalie's book, which is, I forget what it's called, but it's about him basically finding, um, anacondas in Peru. So I've been really into the whole, that kind of what got me on the kick of the Corrales, the kind of more Amazon, South and Central America, or, yeah, kick that I've been on lately. Didn't know you are on that kick. Glad to know. <laughs> it's a good kick to be on. There's a lot of cool stuff in that Corrales genus. For sure. Now, when Austin want to know for sure when you're getting on your uh, when you're getting basins, I don't know. Uh, I'll probably get basins when Austin buys some chondros from me, and I can afford some basins because I've sold some chondros. Um, I don't know. Uh, basins are on the list, uh, just not there yet. Yeah, I think Austin. He was like, "Do I go into chondros or emeralds?" And then he picked emeralds, so I think he maybe shit out of luck on that. Yeah, well, I think he's also uh, he's in love with his Papuans, which I can't blame him on. Mm, yeah, which sounds like you've already brought it up twice. Sounds <laughs> like something you may be in love with, too. I'll tell you, um, when I went to Tony's house last year and got to see that male he has, I mean, that thing is just, that's an amazing animal. And not just because it's a Papuan. I mean, that just that animal as an individual is just stellar and i know you guys were there hanging out this weekend with nrbc i don't know if you took that animal outside but when i was there it just it lights up in the sun and yeah. it's just so it's puppy dog tame and i mean it's like it's like a pet to him it's not really part of his collection even he's uh it, it's just an amazing animal and i've never been around a, an adult like that that was so handleable and i've seen them on display before but never interacted with one close up and i fell in love with that thing last year and then Austin got his, and I was like, oh, this is like a match made in heaven. You guys need to get together. <laughs> and, and Tony's just terrified to put that thing in with anything else because, you know, they like to eat each other. And uh, and he sees that thing as like almost like a child. So I, I, last I asked him, he said he had no intentions of even trying to breed it. So I think Austin's working on uh, getting another one for, for his future breeding project. I think uh, Tony views all of his snakes as... His children, I think. He's like the most conscious <laughs> snake keeper we've ever gone to see as far as like he just loves all of his animals like tremendously, which is super awesome to see. And it's like the Carpondros kind of I like with he's also, okay with Carpondros for once. <laughs> he's also really good about coming up with really good names for his animals, like Yes, uh, like Latte like Testicules. <laughs> yeah, Sir, te- Sir Testicules, yes. 
I like his name. So he has uh, Carpondro with basically a dick and balls on his head and his <laughs> testicules. Look, there he is. He's, he's on the chat right now. He said, my precious. Uh, what's up, Tony? Tony's here. Austin's here. Gustavo's here. And I, I also picked up an S&J sticker from Tony. So you're everywhere, nice. like I said. Nice. You know, what's funny is I was up in New Jersey in January um, I mean, that sounds like a bad joke. Who goes to New Jersey in January, right? Um, but I went up and I visited uh, John Martin when I was up there. And I pull into his driveway and I'd never been there before. And I, it was dark out and it was raining. And I wasn't sure if I was in the right place. And then I walk up and plastered right on the, the side window of his pickup truck is one of Tony's selective uh, serpent stickers. And I was like, all right, got to be in the right place. <laughs> so Tony, Tony's representing too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we need to get on the sticker game. We uh, we're trying to make something that we can put in the back of the podcast that we can put like, like I want to put your sticker, Tony's sticker. We have a sticker from Austin, and then just have people set kind of like you do your fridge. So it's like I want to make a little collection of people, like people who don't suck. I want a little. Oh, okay. Yeah, you didn't have to add that part. Well, but you know. Like, no, how a, did you... a collection of people who don't suck. I, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> it's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, I know, right? You just don't know marketing and fun. Okay. But Ian, what is the what is your? Because I know you have a sticker collection. That's kind of where I got the idea from. Yeah. So so it's actually it's so it's on the side of my incubator. So we've got this big. Um, let's see if I can show you guys. We've got this big uh, 48-inch Sea Serpents hotbox incubator. And uh, so it's got like a big flat surface on the side there. And um, I guess uh, I went somewhere to one show and, and had a couple stickers that I saw. And then, you know, I was saying earlier, my wife does all of our marketing and whatnot. And so she, um, she had some S&J stickers made actually last year. Um, we were starting to use them on some of our shipping boxes and just include them in when we'd ship out snakes. And so, um, I had a couple of stickers that I picked up at a show or whatever. And I was like, Oh, where am I going to put these? What am I going to do with these? And so I just like, you know, just randomly slapped it on the side of the incubator. And, uh, I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. It'd be kind of cool to like fill up the whole thing with stickers. And it made me kind of think back to like, you know, kind of high school, middle school when, like everyone had all these stickers, right? Like I like skateboarding was all about like the skateboard stickers and, jack and shit. Exactly. Like they're all over like your folders and well, I guess that was nowadays not a phase at my high school. <laughs> I guess a lot of kids nowadays they put them on their laptops. They've got laptop stickers. Yeah, that was a college probably more of a white people thing, like a lame Not necessary. <laughs> not necessary. I'm just saying. Not necessary. I was going to say that that was a phase in college for us uh, so uh, on our laptops. Younger. No. We you, used to put them on our skateboard deck. Well, I didn't like, hang out with the skateboard crowd. I know. Because they typically <sighs> were were going to be kicked out of school next year. I was, you know, hanging out with the good guys. Yeah, there's a bunch of saints where you grew up. Yeah, in New Orleans. totally. We were all good kids in New Orleans. We yeah. did not touch alcohol until we were 21. Me either. <laughs> either are we going to go to Columbia? well so that whole thing just started you know so that was kind of the idea behind it and then 
um, like I kind of threw it out there like, oh, if you've got stickers, send me stickers. And next thing I knew, I had like 50 stickers showed up in the mail from all these random people. And so then I just started kind of adding to it. I, I, I kind of took a break because I got tied up with all this Carpet Fest stuff. But um, I'm going to get back to it because I think it's kind of cool. It's uh, all these different people have sent me stickers. And so I'm going to keep adding to it over time. And um, I probably have enough now just about to fill up the whole side of the incubator. So I have to do like the side of a rack or something next. And I'm just going to keep it going and see, you know, kind of how many stickers I can collect. And it'll just kind of be a, a collage over time of, I guess, people who don't suck. People who don't suck. That's important to make those distinctions. Yeah. And, you know, as, uh, you know, as I'm using different products from people or meeting people as I you know travel around the country, it also is a chance for me to kind of give back to those people, give them a shout out and, um, you know, people might make that connection. I think, uh, you know, the reptile community is really strong and that's one of the great things about it. But I think sometimes we, uh, we get too wrapped up in some of like the front end social media stuff and we, we don't make the connections maybe that we should or that we could. So this is just a way for me to, you know, like, Oh, well, I know this person and you know, that person and, you know, I've got two stickers and I put them both out there and someone's like, Oh, I didn't know that guy, you know, that's his logo or that's his company or something like that. So I don't know, I just thought it was kind of a cool, cool idea and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I think that gets more and more important, especially with things like green trees or even Amazon's or stuff where um, things are so commonly imported. People don't know that they have a different option. Yep. So it's like, I would just want to see more um, like green trees and stuff at shows. I would just love to see legit people with green trees. You know, the taking green trees to shows is such a, um, it's a double-edged sword. And I agree with you. I think, uh, I think there's actually less green trees at shows now than there were even years ago. And um, part of that is you used to have the Chondro Coalition, which uh, I think is something that we should see if we can't come up with a way to resurrect. Uh, just so you know, all the displays are sitting in Rocky Gravely's basement. So that's a little bit of a guilt trip. So anyone that wants to contact Rocky and give him a hard time, all the stuff is there. Um, but, you know, taking, like we talked about earlier, the, the big enemy of Green Tree Pythons is stress. And a reptile show is like the complete opposite of a stress-free environment. And so, you know, the just the prospect of having to pack up your animals, transport your animals, set them up, secure them every night, keep them hydrated, keep them from freaking out, keep them from catching mites or God knows what else from your neighbors at the show, then packing them back up, taking them home at the end of the show. Um, it's just an, it's an extremely challenging situation and it's very stressful to the animals and very stressful to the keeper as well. And so I think that's why you don't see a lot of guys bringing green trees to shows. And uh, I mean, I'm just as guilty of it too. I mean, I, I, I did a couple of shows last year and we'll do a couple of shows this year and, and I didn't take any green trees with me to any of those shows. And so it's hard for me to really complain, like, why are there no green trees at these shows when I don't even want to bring my own green trees? And, um, you know, and you want to bring adults to show people what the babies are going to look like. But I don't want to bring my adults. Those are my breeders. You know, like, I don't want to stress them out any more than I have to. And so I don't know. I, it's, it's a little bit of a conundrum. It's like a, a chicken and the egg situation. It's like we all want to see more green trees at the shows but i want everyone else to bring them i don't want to bring them so it's um I, I don't know what the solution to that is i think uh as a community we need to come up with something because what happens then is then the only animals that are at a show 
are usually like fresh imports, typically a lot of Biox, and and then they get a bad rap. And if they're fresh imports, they may need to be wormed or you know they may not be well established. And then people don't have good luck with them. And then oh, condors are impossible to keep. And I'm never going to try one of those again because I bought it for 250 bucks and it died in a month. And so um, you know it's I don't know it's it's a conundrum. It's a, it's a real problem because. You know, the only way to really have people be successful is to educate them and potentially have them start with, you know, more well-established animals that are going to do better for them long term. Uh, but those do cost a little bit more. And so um, there's that pressure as well. Is So you bring all these animals to a show as a breeder and you, you price them accordingly as U.S. captive bred and then no one buys them and they buy all the imports that are three doors down because, you know, they're 250 bucks. And so um, I think there's a real challenge there. And. I mean, I guess it's not really any different or unique than a lot of other species, but um, but it is a dynamic in the chondro community today, and I'm not really sure, you know, how we fix that. Yeah, I mean, it's we saw it so apparent this weekend, where unfortunately there is someone who the same person who had a sexed um, neo sarong or whatever that was clearly straight out of an egg, straight imported. Um, we saw there was mites all over their Amazons. And then luckily the girl that I saw that bought the Amazon, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to tell her in front of the people that were there. So she posted it on the Amazon thing. So I was like on that group. So I was like, um, just a heads up that animal has mites. And then she's like, she didn't even really know what a mite was or how to treat it. Or all she had was a ball python and like a leopard gecko or something, you know? So it's like, no one educated her on how to take right. care and of it's this. Right, and no, it's no fault of the girl. It's, no, that's what it's, it's fault of the breeder. Well, it wasn't a breeder. That's well, the fucking issue, right? Seller. Fault of the seller for not making sure you're selling an Amazon Trebo to a educated buyer. And making sure that it doesn't have... If you have visual mites, it's one thing if you had, like, eggs or something that you couldn't visually see. There were black specks all over this thing. And then I had to tell her after, and then luckily it was the first day of the show so she could take it back and get a ball python that she wanted you know it's just she had 135 dollars to spend and it was like oh this amazon's cool so it's just fuck i just don't want that to happen to everyone because like amazons are cool green trees are cool but like people can really fuck all over your experience with them yeah I, you know i think it's so there's enough fault to go around, right? I mean, buyer beware. I think one of the big problems that we have in the reptile community in general is, you know, impulse buys, right? Like, why why go buy any animal without doing your homework first? You know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I can say that easily, but I agree with I've, that. I've, you know, I've done it too. You go to a show and you're like, I've never seen that before, or I never thought in a million years I would see that. And what am I going to put it in when I get home? I don't know. I'll figure that out when I get home. You know? <laughs> um, so of course that happens. But, you know, I think with some of these animals, especially some of these higher, higher dollar animals, you know, if you're going to go out and you're going to buy a green tree python, you probably should go out and research it first. You probably should have the enclosure set up and fine-tuned and dialed in, not go to a show and be like, oh, that thing's awesome. It's in a deli cup. I'll take it. What am I going to put it in? I don't know. I'll figure it out when I get home because those are the people that end up with it in a 10-gallon tank and it dies in a month. And so I I think some of the responsibility is on the buyer. Um, I think people need to be more informed buyers and need to research what they're going to buy a little bit more ahead of time. It's not like you've got 12 ball pythons and you're buying a 13th ball python. You know, if it's 
the first time you've ever worked with a species, you probably owe it to yourself and to that animal to do a little bit of that research and homework on the front end. Yeah. But also but then like you a said, lot of like, sales would go down at shows. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of sales would go down at shows, but a lot of those animals would survive and would Very thrive true. and, and would do better. And I think in the long run, the sellers, it, it would be in their best interest for those people to do well, because, you know, if you educate that buyer and if, if that seller said to that girl, you know what, I think, you know, I see you're really interested in Amazon Tribo. Have you worked with them before? Do you realize, you know, what you're getting into? I think a ball python might be a better, you know, a better fit for you. They could still make that sale just as easily, but with a more appropriate animal for what that person wants. I mean, you know, it's like how many people have bought a red-eared slider with a 10-gallon tank and think like they're going to keep it in their it, its whole life or, you know, a bearded dragon in a 10-gallon tank or a green iguana in a 10-gallon tank. So, I mean, I think there, there's enough there's certainly enough blame to go around, right? I think we need to be more, we need to be more educated buyers. Um, but at the same time, we need to be responsible sellers as well. And, and I have on more than one occasion turned down a sale to somebody or told somebody, you know, I don't think a green tree python is the right animal for you. Um, but I've also sold green tree pythons to people that have never owned a snake before. Wow. And, but they're willing to research it and listen and do the education that they need to and, and, you know, and be successful with it. So, Sometimes an experienced person that's never worked with a species has all the bad habits that you have to kind of talk them out of versus someone that's never worked with any reptile or any snake. Maybe they've kept a different a turtle or a lizard and they've never worked with a snake before. And then, you you know, they're willing to learn everything you're going to you know need to teach them. So I think it's, it's the responsibility of both parties. Um, I think the other dynamic is that we we unfortunately are still in a period of time where there's a lot of fresh imports available on the market, especially when you talk about the Corallus, um, but even a lot of the green trees that come in from Indo. And, um, you know, as that stuff is readily available, the cost is low. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, I've had people say, well, why should I buy a condo from you when it's twice as much as a condo from, you know, XYZ reseller online. And, um, you know, they're like, isn't it the same thing? Well, yeah, they're both oh. yellow snakes, but they're, they're, they're not the same thing, you know? And I always kind of tell people, you know, look at how much time a seller will spend with you before the sale to know if they're going to spend any time with you after the sale. Because if they won't give you the time of day before the sale and all they'll tell you is the price and where to send the money, they're not going to spend any time with you after the sale at all. And I mean, I, I've had people buy condos from me that have had trouble getting them to eat, so they have to send them back until I can, you know, get them reestablished and then ship it to them again. I've had people locally buy condos who I've had to go make house calls because they, you know, couldn't figure something out or they needed some help. That's so there's awesome, a lot, Ian. There's a there's a lot of post sale support that goes into things, and so you know, when you're buying direct from a breeder, you're you're not only getting a U.S. captive bred animal, but in most cases, you should be getting all the lineage of that animal. You know, I provide a data card that has everything from the day that animal hatched. It gives you all the information about the adults. You've got pictures of everything. You've got, you know, everything about what that animal's used to. You know, one of the most common things you see posted online is, I just bought this animal at a show this weekend and it won't perch and it won't eat. What should I do? And I always, you know, when people contact me, I always say, well, you should talk to the person you got it from. So you should find out exactly what was its setup. What were its temps like? How big a perch did it like? Because all the things like we talked about earlier, they're individuals and they have all these intricacies 
when you buy from a breeder, you know, oh, it was in a shoebox. It was on a plastic coat hanger. It liked to eat frozen thawed every seven days. You know, it liked its temperature to be roughly, you know, 83 to 86. You know all that because you're buying it from someone who can give you all that information as opposed to, oh, yeah, it was one of 12 that I got in last Friday and I only have four left. Do you want it or not? So 20 liter uh, or... 20 liter bottle yeah exactly yeah it was shipped over from indo in a you know nestle water bottle (laughs) but i think it's it's also important that you mention i find that at least from what i've seen from other people is that they babies do better at least much better in racks it seems like yeah so you know one of the sort of counterintuitive things about these animals um especially as babies, they do better in smaller containers. So most people, when they get a baby, you know, they take it home in a deli cup and they want to put it in this big exoterra that's got all these bromeliads in it and a misting system and bright lights on top and, you know, a water bowl. And then they put it in there and the thing goes to the very bottom in the back corner and it sits on the ground, you know, and they're like, why, why won't my chondro perch? Why won't it eat? For whatever reason, they just don't seem to do well in those environments, at least not right off the bat. So, you know, most of our babies, our hatchlings, we keep them in sea serpents, shoebox racks. And quite frankly, they do fine in there, sometimes all the way until they're yearlings. Um, I think I've got some that are probably closer to 18 months than that, even that are still in shoeboxes. And they just, they, they do well in those those small enclosures. I think partially because there's... Um, it's it's common with green trees that they will sometimes they oftentimes will find a spot to sit where they feel most comfortable and that's not always where the most ideal temperature conditions are and they will choose a spot that is too warm or too cool if they feel comfortable there or they feel secure there um, rather than say oh i should move over because i'm too cold but i don't feel as secure over there where it's warmer so i'm going to stay over here and so Keeping them in a smaller shoebox, it gives them less options. So you can keep them with a, a smaller temperature gradient to ensure that they're always going to be where you want them temperature-wise. And they just seem to thrive that way. Um, you know, Once they're established and they're eating well and consistently, there's no problem with moving them up. But I always tell people really cautiously when you move them up in size, because a lot of times when you move them from a small shoebox to a bigger box or from a small shoebox to an exoterra, that's when they, they decide they don't want to perch or they don't want to eat. And then you put them back in their shoebox where they're used to, and they go right back to eating. And um, that's that's probably a, one of the more common things that I see, even when I ship them to people, is they put them in too big of an enclosure too quickly. Um, you know, they're just excited. They want to put them in something where they can see them, and the animal just gets stressed out because it's not what it's used to. And they just seem to really thrive and do better in smaller containers. Absolutely. So one thing that people have been requesting is for you to show... Wait, the- I have a question oh. before. Shit. <laughs> I have like three questions and I oh, lost shit. half of them. One was a silly one and two uh, were legit. Oh Uh-oh. Pee if you want to you have to pee? Okay. You Wait, are we to- keeping track of uh, how many pee breaks Joe's taking? Oh, well, I, I, was about- I was about to tell him he didn't have to announce it. Like When I went to I'm pee, just- I just went. But he likes to announce it for some reason so that everyone knows that he's peeing. Um... But I, I can't remember my questions. But I can do some other things. Um, I don't know if you know Brett. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Brett Roar. He's been like a really good supporter of us, and he said to tell you, hey, and that he knows that you know who he is. I mean, 
I know you know a lot of people, but he has a bunch of cool green trees. And, All right. Um, What's up, Brett? Send me a message <laughs> on Facebook. I, I'm not sure which Brett you're talking about. Maybe if I saw his Facebook profile, I would know. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't know. I know he's on Instagram. I don't know about him on Facebook. Um, shoot. I don't remember other questions, but I have my silly question. My silly question is what is the most off the beaten path question you've ever received as a uh, breeder? Oh, wait, I remembered my other one. Oh, shit, man. shit. Wait, let me ask the other one first. All right, let me go ask back. the other one first. Okay. Um, last week when we were talking to Jason, um, I don't. I guess we start, we're talking about sexing the snakes and probing or all that fun stuff. And he was saying how he doesn't feel comfortable probing, but we got into talking about sheds and how he has noticed on his males, he can see the hemipenes. And Tony was on there. Tony said he's seen it with his carpets. And it was just kind of like an interesting conversation because Joe and I have never noticed. Oops, sorry to hit your mic. We've never noticed it in our corns, and I don't think you've heard of it in green trees. You've never even noticed it in your carpets, right? No. So it was just, I don't know. If you've ever noticed it, if it's something you've never thought about, because like Jason was like, oh, I've never thought about why do some do it, why don't. Yeah, just wanted to talk about that. Yeah, so you're talking about like uh, shed sperm plugs on the, the sheds? Yeah. Right. So, you know, what's funny is I never really paid attention to that before I got into green trees, and I think. You know, with some species, the sexual dimorphism is really obvious, right? Like, either the males are significantly smaller than the females, or the tail shape is different, or, you know, in lizards, there's, like, you know, femoral pores, or in turtles, they've got different, you know, the males have the really long front claws. So, in a lot of reptile species, it, it's really easy to tell. Um, green trees and, and a lot of other pythons, it's, it's virtually impossible to tell, Um and so it wasn't until really I got into green trees when, you know, the whole unsexed thing in green trees is a big deal. A lot of animals are sold, especially as babies, as unsexed. And then even later on, um, sexing chondros is, I would say, dicey at best. And um, like I jokingly have said on more than one occasion, you know, like it's not a confirmed female until it's got I've seen eggs come out of it, you know, uh, until I until it's laid eggs, whether they're fertile or not. I, I oftentimes don't believe that it's it's a female. Um, and likewise, males um, can also be really difficult to sex. And so definitely the, the whole concept of looking at sheds is a nice tool. Um, but there's a caveat to that. So first of all, is so people call them shed sperm plugs, and they think that they can be an indicator of when the animal is producing sperm or is, is fertile. And that's actually not true. So um, it is definitely, you know, sperm plugs, I think, is technically like the incorrect terminology, but it's what we all call it. Um, but there's really no sperm involved. It's just the, it is part of the shed skin and, um, oh, excuse me. And so with males, a lot of times they will, you can see the shed plugs when, when the males will shed, but not always. So you can have a male shed and not see the plugs or they'll shed and the plugs for whatever reason have a tendency to break or fall off. So you can get a whole perfect okay. shed and they're just not there or they've fallen off or they've broken off. Or sometimes they, they just don't shed them, like, but every second or third or fifth cycle. Um, it is a really nice tool because I can say, especially with chondros that I plan to grow out regardless, I oftentimes won't actually probe them. I will wait until they shed plugs and I'm like, oh, that one's obviously a male. So you can, if you see shed plugs, you know it's a male. There's no doubt about it. 
But if you don't see shed plugs, it could still be a male. Um, you just don't really know. And so um, missexing chondros, I think, is actually more common than people realize. So when I told you I started with those original six animals and they were three pairs, originally I actually wasn't sure. The last one I thought I might have actually had uh, one of the, the last male I thought might have been a female. And it wasn't until I put it in with another male that I knew was a male that I found out it was a male because they fought and they both tore each other up. And so missex chondros is, is actually a big deal because if you get it wrong, um, you can you can be in a lot of trouble. Now, having said that, I also have received probably, oh, I don't know, close to half a dozen animals that were sold to me as sexed females that ended up being males. Mm. And so I think chondros are uh, particularly difficult to probe because the males, understandably, when you probe them, they clench up really tight. And you because you want to be really delicate and gentle with their spines, I think a lot of times people go to insert the probe and they're like, oh, it's not going in. It's not going in. It must be a female. But in reality, it's actually a male that's just clenching up really hard. And, you know, he doesn't want you to stick that probe in and you don't want to hurt him. And so more often than not, I have had animals that were sexed as female that turned out to be male than the other way around. Um, but that's why you see so many, you know, so chondros generally sex, sold as unsexed babies, even unsexed yearlings. Um, I generally don't sex my animals uh, via probe unless I have to. And for the most part, I just grow them up until they're big enough that, you know, I generally can at that point tell which are the males because they've shed so many times. And uh, once they start to get fairly decent sized, then, you know, when I need to, I can probe them. Right. So have you, I mean, I know it's a while back to think, but do you remember if you saw the sperm plugs in the shed on the other uh, species you kept? You know, I don't remember ever seeing it, which is which is weird. You'd think with all those different species and, and all those animals, I would have. Back then, I was never looking for it. I never really was thinking in terms of like that being a useful piece of information. So I very likely could have seen it and just never paid any attention to it or just never recorded it. Now, if I see shed plugs, I mean, I'm, I'm writing it on the data card that it's getting notated exactly the date and the animal. But... To be honest, in, in all the years I worked with other species, it wasn't until I started working with chondros that was something I even was really cognizant of or paying attention to. Yeah, it's something I, I don't know why I'm like super now interested in it. No, no, I'm legit fascinated because there's no, because the thing like, it's a thing we've never thought about because we've never known. I mean, granted, we're not invest, not, we're not, you know, investigating the sheds, but it's like, it, I want to know why. I don't like not knowing why even if I would, it's some explanation that i will never understand i want <laughs> well we have we have come across the fact that even if we're not dealing with chondros you often get things that are supposed to be females that end up being males just because people don't know how to pop or people don't know how to yeah. probe or even i don't know how to probe my jungle that i had since the damn baby that i probed i probed female back in the day and i said i probed it once it's cool, it's good, but no, that's just not really how it goes. So. Yeah, my guess would be that it, it must occur in all species. Um, I just think that it's it's a bigger deal in pythons just because, you know, there's, there's so little sexual dimorphism and we all want to know what's what. But I would guess that it's probably common throughout most species of snake, but I honestly never remember looking for it, so, so I'm not sure. And... 
I thought that too, but then when Tony sent us the picture of his, it's like, I mean, maybe it's not as obvious in ours, but like, it's, it was super obvious in terms, like, it's a thing you're not gonna miss. Like, it, I just don't think it, it, it's intact every time, right? Yeah, that's what he said. It falls oh, yeah, it, it definitely is not intact every time. And I've seen where, like, just the, just the two sperm plugs part will fall off and be laying on the cage separate from the rest of the shed. Um, sometimes it, Sometimes they don't shed that part, and that part gets retained internally, so they only shed it every, like, fourth or fifth cycle. So, I, I don't know. I honestly just, I never remember looking for it or paying attention to it in colubrids or any other species. Yeah, me right. either. And uh, most of our guests get, like, a weird nickname. I was gonna say that. Ugh. And we kind of, no one came up with a good one, but Evan noticed you're the David Schwimmer of Chondros, which is... <laughs> I don't know who David Schwimmer of I don't know who David Schwimmer. Who's David Schwimmer? He's the guy from Friends, the uh, the paleontologist. What's his name? I didn't watch Friends. I don't know. He, I can look it up. Like I well, they were trying to figure out who you look like. I said you have twenty five percent John Heater in you. I don't know who that is. Whoa, That's Napoleon good. Dynamite! Come on. Oh God! Well, that doesn't sound like a compliment, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Go with <laughs> David Schwimmer. <laughs> Oh my god, you couldn't think of the name Ross. You thought of paleontologist and not the name Ross. I don't even watch friends. I know that's Ross. Come on. But we wanted he to does kinda look like close Ross. show off with one animal and I wanted you to show your old blue girl and kinda give the little backstory. Alright, so I don't know if you can see her. This is this is Bertha over here. Can you see her from there? Oh, not yeah, really. You can see her. Okay, so um, Bertha is a, a very old animal. Um, so she came to me, she's been here a few years already. Um, so she came to me from Bob Weishart, Robert Weishart. And Bob is an iron worker here in South Florida. And I'm going to butcher it. I don't remember the name of his, his kind of breeding setup when he was back in it in the day. It was... Um, it was Ironhead Conjures or Ironworks Conjures. Well, it was something having to do with the fact that he's an iron worker. And um, so Bob, I guess, had pretty much gotten out of Conjures. And a couple of years ago, um, him and I connected. And um, he said, hey, you know, I've got this, this really old pair of Beox. I don't know if they're even viable anymore. And they've, they've produced for me several times. And, um, you know, it's the last pair. And I, I'd love to send them to you on Breeding Loan if you're interested. And, of course, I jumped at the opportunity um they have been in captivity for 20 plus years together so they were imported together originally um bertha and, and the, the other one that's in there i don't know if you can see him uh but there's a male in there with her limey where um, is he oh, no, i can't see him hold on let's see let's see if i can move can oh, you see yes, him yes yes so he's kind of up in the corner there so bertha and limey they're kind of like an old married couple i guess um oh my phone's falling now you told me it would mess up as soon as I started moving it around, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've kept it in the holster this whole time. And now well, I'm it's our it. fault. We wanted you um, to sh- give us closer looks. <laughs> so I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the story offhand, but Bob got them from another gentleman who got them when they first were imported. So Bob had had them for, I think he said, like around 15 years when I got them. So this other guy had them for a couple years, and they were adults when they came in. So these animals have to be 20, 25 years old. And uh, they produced several clutches for Bob, um, both red and yellow neos. 
And uh, I've had them together on and off for probably about two years, actually. And they breed consistently. I mean, they breed. I see them locked, I bet you, on average once a month. Maybe maybe more often. And I joke that they just do it for fun because um, I never really see anything come of it. And um, I don't know. This is the most plump I think she's ever been. Is Joe sneezing or coughing? or I'm not sure what's going on. Well, okay. He, he turned off both our microphones so that he could, like, lean over and sneeze and not make the sound. And then he didn't end up doing it. So I was laughing at him. Nice. <laughs> but, um. So this is this is the most plump. I don't know if you can see. I mean, she's she's a big girl. She's she's plump. She's got good, great body weight. If she's going to be able to produce anything at this point in her life, I think you know she's in the right condition. And and it may actually be him. It might be that he's not fertile anymore. And I don't have the heart to put another male in there with her because I kind of feel like you know if anyone's going to get to breed the old girl, it should be her lifelong partner. Um, they, they have produced some really high yellow, nice looking animals. And, um, I've never seen another Bioc that looks quite like her other than there's a gentleman in Europe. Yeah. There's a guy in Europe who has one that's very similar looking. And I'm sure part of it is like a hormonal blue color where she's gone hormonal multiple times and then just never went back. Um, but she's, you know, she can be a little bit of a handful when she's on, on food and she's got a feeding response, but uh, but other times she's just puppy dog tame and, and, you know, she's, I mean, she's gorgeous. And for a Biak, she's, uh, she's got a great temperament and she's not, she's not a small snake either by any means. I mean, she is, um, I bet you she's probably every bit of like 12, 1300 grams, maybe more, maybe 1400 grams. Um, look at the animals that are paired up. They're about the same width together as she is alone. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Would you be willing so, to I mean, to open the cage for uh, for her? Yeah, hang on a second. Let's see what we can Let's do here. Let's see if we don't explode the whatever the hell. The hangout. It didn't the other day. Oh. It it decides to lag here. when you move around a little bit too much for some reason. Yeah, I can't figure out how to how to flip the camera around. Is what I'm trying <laughs> to do with them. So so that's oh, Bertha that's and gorgeous. Oh, but she has a little green on the end. Yep, she's gonna. Or the head. And granted, me, the head. Right, right, head. right now, you know, it should be lights out. They should all be sleeping. Well, they should all be cruising around. They should, you know, we should be sleeping. But I've got their lights on. And see, this is another pair. They're paired up right now. That's yeah. A, they're um, the width of her. <laughs> it looks like exactly, exactly. Um, we've got another pair that are together up here. Um, this is actually probably the biggest chondro in the collection right now. This is Lucy, another Biak. She's like really dark and melanistic. She's got a ton of black on her. Um, her eyes look really cool right now. Yeah. Uh, this is actually, this is one of our holdbacks from a couple of years ago. Uh, this is one that, that's got kind of like a tricolor look to it. It's got the blue, the yellow, and the green. Uh, this is the one I told you earlier, six. This is the one that always liked to bite me when it was a, a little one. Um, and you can see, I mean, like these guys are kind of on point right now because it's it's normally lights out. So they're normally in hunting mode. Right. Uh, some other ones down here. This is a, uh, a Lara. Um, what else do we have here? These are, these are kind of cool. It's kind of dark on the side of the room. Um, these are some holdback animals. These are actually some, some animals from Paul Bodner. Some is red he, uh, never heard neos. Of him. Is he in Florida? 
Uh, yeah, he's kind of like a zoo guy. He does a lot of crocodilian stuff. Um, <clears throat> this is... Um, so remember I told you about that one baby that survived from that Gems Kofial clutch? Right. So you can see this is this animal is a a 2016. So this is a yearling animal and look at look at all that yellow it's still it's holding. It's big and it hasn't changed any. Yeah. Um this is the animal. Oh, of course it's got a dirty cage, but this is the animal that uh it's freezing up, isn't it? So that's oh, that really go. dark one. Ooh, I like oh, that yeah. one. Yeah, everybody likes that See, one. See, that reminds me of like little emerald. It, it, it speaks to my emerald love. With the dark greens and the whites. Right. You think that animal's done changing or do you think it will change? Um, that one, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I truthfully, I didn't expect that it would even hold that much black. And uh, I fully expect that one day I'll open the drawer, it'll just be a totally green snake and the black will be gone. But um, but so far, it seems to be holding that black quite a bit. And it's actually got some white coming in. I don't know if you saw that kind of on the dorsal. So Emerald. It, um, Emerald. <laughs> I don't know. Fingers crossed. I, I would love for it to hold that black. Um, so what's interesting is that one came from, I have a male that we call Mystery because we just don't know what he is. Uh, he might be Biak, he might be Maroki, he might be Biak Maroki, he might be Biak something else. Well, who knows what he is? And, um, oh, Bill Hughes just sent me a message in the middle of this. I'll have to look at that later. He must be taunting me for something I said. But um, anyhow, <clears throat> so that, that animal with all that black scalation came from um, that mystery male bred to an Aru. And then that was in 2016. So last year we did that same male mystery bred to a Biok. And I'm really curious to see if any of those produce anything, um, you know, with that same melanistic look to them or not. Because you would think if, if breeding him to an Aru produced that kind of melanistic, then who knows bred to a Biok? Because Biok seems to kind of be a little bit more of a wild card in terms of, you know, blacks and yellows and blues and whites kind of all coming through at the same time. So... That's, that's what's always interesting about breeding, you know, the same animals multiple years is you just, you can really refine what you're trying to get you know, them to express. And do you think that, you know, we see all these, even in Austin brought it to my attention, the northern emeralds and the basin emeralds, when you put them together, you can get some weird colored animals. Do you think designers maybe stem from southern species to northern species do you think there could be any validity to that well i mean i think that there's probably something there you know you're taking two populations that generally wouldn't mix together and you're mixing the genes together and so you could be getting some some either both different genotypes and different phenotypic expression that you wouldn't normally get um, but I think you see that in a lot of animals that are from, you know, have a wide range and you're mixing them from different ends of the range or whatnot. And we know that some of these hybrids are naturally occurring where they're, you know, where they have ranges that overlap and whatnot. So part of it is probably just naturally part of the way that that, you know, those genes get passed back and forth between different populations. And um, and part of it is kind of our own little Frankensnake experiment of, you know, what can we mix with what and what can we come up with? Um I don't know. Uh, the purist in me says, like, you know, I, I'd rather just stick with the way that they were. But but you look at some of the, the designer stuff, both in the, the Corrales and in the Conjurers, and 
some of it's just absolutely outstanding. You know, you look at what Ed Marino is doing with some of those high white snowflake line animals in the basins. It just blows your mind. I mean, that stuff is just unreal. And the same thing in conjures. I mean, you know, it's a green tree python, but we've got animals that are almost black. We've got animals that are almost yellow. We've got animals that are blue. You know, I feel like, you know, once once we get to the point that someone's got like a white conjuro and, you know, yeah. who knows? But um, it's uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting is that we're not at a point with some of these species where we are with like, you know, leopard geckos and corn snakes and ball pythons and bearded dragons. You know, we, ha- we haven't unlocked all of that genetic potential yet. So really, at this point, like every clutch of conjurers, every clutch of corallus could be that clutch that's got something totally new that no one's ever seen before, that no one's ever produced before. And so I think that's one of the kind of the cool things. Same thing with Sanzinia. You know, some of these species that just haven't been produced, you know, extensively in captivity or the genetics we just haven't really figured out. Because conjures have been produced pretty consistently for, gosh, you know, you go back to 70s, 80s, you know, some of the, right, the original right. national zoo stuff. So I think, you know, we certainly have bred a lot of them. But you look at, you know, just the the different morphs, not morphs, but the different designer phenotypes that are now coming out. I mean, some of the stuff with the the black melanistic look to it, it seems like there's a lot of that popping out right now. You know, Bill's got the sickness. Uh, Clyde Claus has the odd job. Um, you know, we produced this one in 2016. That's got a lot of melanistic look to it. There's just there's just so much genetically to still unlock with conjures, and I think the same is true with Corallus too. Yeah, I love the way yours still has white flecks in with the black and the green. I think it's awesome. But, but stop having extra questions. Good. I was about to say, like, you said we we're going to end it so on him sorry. showing, and you asked. I'm, I'm sorry for keeping you for, like, a half it's hour It's, like, longer. almost 10 o'clock his time. But, um, oh, that's all right. I could talk snakes for hours. Yeah, I mean, every, we could, if this show had no boundaries it would go on for four hours like uh but i don't have, have enough beers i would have to go make another <laughs> run downstairs to the fridge so if anyone wants to get in touch with you where can they reach you so you know we're pretty readily available on social media so we're on instagram we're on facebook um you can go email the old-fashioned way so sj reptile it is singular on gmail so it's sj reptile at gmail.com uh, we do have a website, uh, sjreptilesplural.com, um, just the way it worked out, right? One of them's plural, one's singular. Uh, but Facebook, we're readily available on Facebook. We're readily available on Instagram. Send me a message. Send me a friend request. Uh, we do have plenty of 2017 animals still available. We actually still have, I got to check, I think we still have from three different clutches from 2017. So um, some of those were actually hatched at the end of June, so they're actually closer to yearlings than to to babies. Um, but shoot us a Facebook message, shoot us an Instagram. Feel free to to send an email. Um, we do, you know, respond, and, and we're we're readily available. That's awesome. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Do we have a parting? No, but there is the one topic we never talked about, but we need to end it. it. Carpet fest. Oh shit! Yeah, we, uh, we can't we can't not talk about carpet fest. Oh, uh, but go. it's a little if more. Ian says it's okay. Then let's Ian, go. do you realize we're already forty minutes past our normal? That's. I mean, if you guys want to keep going and people want to still no. listen, there's nothing I would rather there, talk about you know than what? carpet fest. It's bad because the last half hour, um, like Tony, Austin, Evan, all the like 
all the people we know personally came on, so I feel like it's just been keeping it going, so... It's like the regular crew. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Carpet Fest, Southeast Carpet... Or, yes, I believe it's Southeast Carpet Fest. It was gone for a year, now it's back, and it was at Dave Palumbo's house. Um, what was the deal with that? It seems like you put everything together. What? So... So actually, um, it, it's it's a great story, um, and it's actually so it was two years off. But um, so the the story really, and since we got all the guys listening, I, I assume they're still listening in, or I don't know if they're gonna have to listen the rest on replay. But so really, the story is really more about Carpet Fest than it is just about Southeast Carpet Fest. And so um, it really starts probably probably roughly a year ago. So if you remember, Evan had a conjurer that was gravid about this time last year, a female. And he ended up having complications and, and whatnot, and the animal survived and is doing fine for him. But Evan and I were talking a lot. You know, like, he was checking on his eggs, I don't know, it was probably like every three or four minutes, I think, at one point. Um, but, you know, he, Evan was was really enthusiastic, and he was he was talking to me a lot about, like, how do I set up the egg box? How do I set up the, the incubation box? And so we got talking, and Evan's a really cool guy. He's really into his animals. And I said to him at one point, I said, Evan, you know, if I'm going to make one trip to Texas this year, should I come for Carpet Fest or should I come for the Arlington NARBC show? And he said, oh, you should definitely come for Carpet Fest. And I said, really? I said, you know, NARBC seems pretty fun. I see all these pictures, and, you know, it looks like a good time. And he said, no, no, you should definitely come for Carpet Fest. I said, well, I don't even know what Carpet Fest is. I don't keep carpets, like. You know, what's the deal? He's like, no, everyone's going to be there. It's going to be at Bill Stiegel's house. And he went into like salesman mode and like just told me all the awesome things about Southern Carpet Fest and why I had to come. I was like, all right, done. I'm going to make a business trip. I'll, I'll come up with a reason to be in Dallas that time. And uh, and when I did, I actually reached out to some of the other guys locally and I, I made time to go see Evan and I went to go see Mark Hager and I went to see Tony Jerome. And, um, and about this time I found out like all these other people coming in from out of town, Chris Salemi and Owen and Eric and Mike Pinnell and Matt Morris, just like all these guys are coming and I'm like, all right, this sounds awesome. I, I got to go. So I went to Southern Carpet Fest and I had an awesome time. I did get in a little bit late on the party and there was not even any carpet space left at Bill's place to crash. Um, even like the hammock on the back porch was occupied. Terry Burnell fell asleep in that at like three o'clock in the morning and Brian slept on the couch or the floor and Evan slept on the floor of the snake room. So whatever, no big deal. I stayed at a hotel just down the street. But, um, but so I went to carpet fest and it, for me, it was like, I worked all week and then I had this awesome reptile weekend with like all these different people. And I saw all these collections and we went to the zoo and we went to carpet fest and it was just a blast. And, um, and I got home and my wife's like, so how was your trip? And I was like, well, the, the work trip sucked. It was work, but like, man, like carpet fest was awesome. And I just, I couldn't stop talking about it. And it was such a good time. And I'm telling her all these crazy stories. We stayed up till three o'clock in the morning and Brian was drunk and he rolled off the couch and someone slept <laughs> in a hammock. And, I mean, and like, oh, these crazy, this other crazy couple were in the hot tub till like two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, like. Not so alone. Like, <laughs> well, that makes it sound worse. <laughs> well, anyway, so, you know, I'm like telling all these stories. And I'm like, and it was just awesome. And she's like, really? That, that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. And I said, you know, I got to find out about when they're going to have one of these in Florida. And so I started asking Eric and Owen, and they're like, oh, look up Southeast Carpet Fest. And so I look up Southeast Carpet Fest, and 
I find out um, that KJ and, and Dave Pearson and a couple of other guys, they, they tried to hold one of these in 2015. And they had a really hard time getting a venue and they had a hard time getting people together. And they only had a very small number of people show up. I think they had like five people show up in 2015. Wow. And I, and I reach out to them and I'm like, hey, guys, I just got back from Texas. And I want to know when Southern Carpet Fest 2017 is going to be or Southeast is going to be because I want to go. I want a T-shirt. I want to go. It was awesome. And they're like, no, people suck. Florida people suck. <laughs> We're not doing it. Um, you know, we can't get people organized and no one wants to host it and, and good luck with all that, but it, it's one and done We're we're not doing this anymore. And I was like, huh? Okay. And you know, I don't, I don't like taking no for an answer very well. And I was like, I had such a good time at this thing in Texas. Like we, we can't, we got, Florida's got to represent, right? Like we're the Southeast. Like we got a ton of reptile it's people. the reptile state. Exactly. And so, um, so I, I, I reached out to Eric and Owen and was like, you know, I really would like to try to get this thing going. And KJ and Dave were like, oh, yeah, have at it. Like, you know, we'll add you to the group and see what you can do. And so um, so I said to Eric and Owen, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to get this thing going. And so the first thing I had to do is I had to find a venue. So then I go back to my wife and I go, hey, remember that thing I went to Texas for? And she's like, yeah. I said, remember how awesome a time I had? And she said, yeah. I said, how about we have one of those at our house? And she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> and I'm like, why not? She's like, you, that's the thing you told me that you had reptile people at their house till three o'clock in the morning and there's people passing out everywhere. And you had a frozen daiquiri machine and people in the hot tub. And she's like, no, absolutely not. She's like, that does not sound like something. I've got two children and I don't want all these strange reptile people at my house. She's like, no, you're not having a reptile party at my house. <laughs> and that was when I realized that my mistake was I went into way too much detail about <laughs> my weekend in Texas. If I had just told her like it was a very mellow, low-key gathering of reptile people, she probably would have been like, yeah, it's fine. But I went into too much detail about like Kim chasing people around for keys and, you know, Bill like, you know, just being like, oh, people can sleep wherever they want. And I was too honest, basically. So, so I went to Dave or I went to Eric and Owen, and Eric's like, "Oh, you know, Dave Palumbo just moved to Florida. You should you should talk to him." So I had never met Dave Palumbo before. I didn't even know who he was. Um, and actually, they gave me two names. They gave me Dave Palumbo and Derek Roddy. So first, I went and I, I hung out and got to know Derek Roddy, and um, and Derek's a super cool guy. He's got awesome blackhead collection, and I put and, and he's like, "Well, you know, I'll help you, but I can't host it." And of course, I post pictures going to Derek's place and people start messaging me like, man, you're hanging out with a rock star. And I'm like, yeah, Derek's really cool. He's really into black kids. They're like, no, he's a rock star. And I'm like, you mean like in the reptile world? They're like, no, literally a rock star. Look him up on YouTube. So yeah, I didn't know Derek Roddy is like a world-renowned drummer. And he's like, he is literally, his profession is rock star. I think so he, um, he makes a living on drum lessons and stuff like that, I believe. Yeah, he's got a band and he travels and does gigs and... Um, so anyway, so then the next guy was Dave Palumbo, and and so I, I reached out to Dave, and same thing. I'm like, oh, Dave's pretty cool. He's into boas and pythons, and people are like, no, Dave's like Dave's like the man. He's like a world-renowned bodybuilder. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so it turns out Dave is literally like a world-renowned yeah. bodybuilder. He's married. His wife is a former bodybuilder. It's like all these big names in, in these other places. So anyway, so I tell Dave this whole story, and I'm like, you know, so what do you think? You want to host? 
carpet fest and he's like it's like man that sounds awesome he's like i have a freestanding building he's like it's my my work office plus my reptile collection and i'm he's like, super loaded <laughs> yeah he's like this sounds awesome he's like i just moved down from new york and he's like he's like the only thing is that my wife's due to have a baby in january and i'm like okay and i'm like but we're thinking about having this in february he's like well as long as nobody goes in the house it should be fine and at this point, we were thinking, like, well, the last time they did this, they had five people. So, like, you know, I figured, like, well, between Dave and me, like, just our wives and kids, we got eight people. Like, you know, so we should be in pretty good shape. And so we started planning this event, and we got a bunch of people together at the Daytona show in August. And we had, like, 15 people show up for the planning meeting. So I was like, all right, like, there's actually interest in this, and it seems like it'll be a good thing. And and somehow, as we got closer to the date, the number of people kept increasing. And I remember at one point, Dave saying something like, well, you know, if we have, like, you know, 15, 20 people, we'll be in good shape. But just as long as we don't have, like, 50 people, because that'll be oh. out of control. Well, <laughs> needless to say, we ended up with, like, 40-something people. Um, but it was awesome. It was it was just a, a really fun time. We raised a ton of money for so US Arc. Much so much money. $12,000 for US Arc, which is just amazing. Um, and it was just an all-around great time. We had like a, just a smorgasbord of food. And a lot of people showed. A lot of people participated in the auction from all around the country. Like I can't even give enough shout-outs and thanks to all the people that contributed. And, and the cool thing was is that it, it accomplished exactly what we wanted Carpet Fest to accomplish. So... Like today, I was talking to a guy who um, came all the way down from outside of Pittsburgh, and he bred chondros for the first time a couple years ago, and he was just excited to connect and learn more about shipping, and Mike Arnold from Reptiles Express was there, and they connected about shipping, and there was another guy there, Mike Thorne, and he came up and he said, hey, do you know anything about brettles? I was like, I don't know anything about brettles, but Casey Cannon's here, he knows about brettles, and they talked for about brettles for like an hour, and um, and there was another guy there, Eric Chung. Uh, he's a buddy of mine, local, who works with a lot of different reptiles. And, and he met Derek Roddy for the first time. And then they started talking about blackheads. And it was just such a cool opportunity to see all these people that would have never met otherwise connect about reptiles, but not at a show and not online, just in real life. And, and people just talking about reptile stuff. And it was a kick-ass time. I think uh, you know we, we blew everything out of the water as far as raising the money for US Arc. We did not destroy Dave Palumbo's house. Um, which was good, and maybe his wife will let us come back again repeat, next year. Repeat, exactly. Um, I feel like there were so many people that wanted to come this year, and we're like, well, we're gonna see how it goes. So I feel like next year could be like twice as big. And the thing I keep reminding people is it's February in Florida. You're like, who wants to be anywhere else in February other than someplace warm? Right. And so, um, you know, hopefully we have raised the bar for the other carpet fest to raise more money. Hopefully we've made the Carpet Fest franchise proud by resurrecting what the the guys in 2015 started. And I don't want to discount what KJ and Dave did. You know, we're standing on their shoulders and just continuing to run with what they started and, and carry that torch forward. But but really it's a testament to what Eric and Owen started with the Northeast Carpet Fest. And the whole idea was, you know, we have a great reptile community online, but we also have a great reptile community in the real world and so the more we get together in the real world and the more we exchange information and ideas and the more we get to hang out i think the better and uh so southeast carpet fest was awesome we hope to do it again next year hopefully the auction will be even bigger and uh, hopefully we'll have even more people come next year well you got to be careful about doing such a good job because <laughs> Evan is currently trying to recruit you 
and I think Eric and Owen are going to try to recruit you on. to help there. Yeah. It's like you're clearly yeah. like you make things happen. Well, I, I do like being the guy who makes thing ha- things happen, but I can tell you Dave has already said, you know, he's not sharing me with everybody else. And <laughs> I'm, on, I'm, on, uh, I'm on carpet fest vacation for at least like the next six weeks before I take on any new projects. But uh, but I do hope to make it to Southern Carpet Fest again this year because that was really what got this all started for me. And, and Evan keeps telling me about this crazy shrimp boil he's planning. Um, so I, I don't want to miss out on that. But I'm not as fanatical as Evan. I feel like Evan starts planning Carpet Fest like during the last year's Carpet Evan Fest. Evan doesn't stop. Right. I, I need a break, at least a little <laughs> bit. And uh, Owen already tried to recruit me to do the Northeast Carpet Fest auction. and But Eric said he's already got a plan up his sleeve to one-up us and do us better. And he thinks he's competitive enough to do it. So I say bring it on. And Well, Evan literally... Evan literally just posted in the chat. Tell Evan or tell Ian I will need his help setting up auctions for Southern Carpet Fest. He did a great job. Like <laughs> you are the auction man. Well, you know, it takes a village and and I'd like to say that that I'm the man, but the truth is uh my wife helped a lot with the auction, a lot with Carpet Fest. Casey Cannon was a big part of the auction. We had a lot of people on the planning committee. We had a whole group of guys that were in charge of beverages and and food and um taking pictures so i can't take credit for all of it It, like i said it was a a big group effort and uh the auction was no doubt uh, a group effort as well and we couldn't have done it with all the people who donated stuff and we also couldn't have done it with all the people without all the people who bid on stuff um which i was one of those people so i won way too many items in the auction (laughs) Lesson, (laughs) lesson learned i thought i was just bidding stuff up and that um at the end of the auction that other people would be bidding at the end and when we were wrapping it all up, I, Casey kept saying, oh, Ian, you want another item? Oh, you want another item? Oh, you want another? I'm like, are you kidding me? So, um, yeah, I I won several new Corrales in the auction. I won this awesome shirt Woo-hoo! in the auction, which I know, I know, Joe, when you made this shirt, you knew I was going to buy it. So I, yeah, I really feel I like... like If I make a shirt, I need to at least have a market of one person who's going <laughs> to bid it up. So. <laughs> Well, you know, leave it to an Alabama fan to come up with a Gator shirt that, yeah, I, mean, uh, that I can say no to. I mean, I mean, let's not talk about the fact that you're a Gator fan because it's. Ugh. Well, she went to LSU, so I mean, they're not even in that. I mean, we have a personalized <sighs> chant against the Gators, so. It's, it's lonely at the top is all I can say. You're but, not. Uh, I mean, if we're going to go that, they're at the top. I mean, right now they've been at the top for well, actually, an the unfortunate last time. You were time. at the top. I started school in 2010. My before I went into my freshman year is when we beat Tebow and the Gators and when we took over. It's great times. It sucks to be a Florida Gator. I said but, it sucks <laughs> to be. <laughs> One one thing that you won't have to worry about, I can tell you, at Carpet Fest this year is lodging. Because, I mean, I have a sleeping bag, and we can just share a sleeping <laughs> bag. Nice. And we have a 10-man tent that we're going to put in the By Austin. We all... And you don't even have to bring is, a sleeping bag. Is is anybody bringing a, uh, a hammock for Terry? <laughs> we can make that happen. Um, you know, as great as I bet your carpet fest was if you're missing out on like the debauchery that's gonna happen at this one like 100 percent. it's gonna get i will say yeah there was no debauchery at our carpet fest so dave had 
some very clear ground rules. The first ground rule was no one's allowed in the house. The second rule was no one's allowed in the house. Um, (laughs) The third rule was no one could block the driveway where his wife needed to get in and out of the house. And the fourth rule was that it was beer and wine only, so there was no hard liquor available. So I think those four rules combined with a a very clear nine o'clock ending time, even Whoa. though we didn't leave there till probably the last straggler is probably about ten ten thirty. Um, but he was very clear on on some of the ground rules, and so I will say there was no debauchery, there was no late night shenanigans, and I can't remember who it was. Somebody, it might have even been Austin Warwick. Somebody messaged me, like, it was like 11 o'clock that night. And I was like, oh, I just got back to the hotel. And they're like, you're already done with Carpet Fest? And I was like, yeah, we just got back to the hotel, like, literally just now. And they're like, yeah, but it's only like 11 o'clock your time. And they were really shocked at how early in the evening it was because, you know, the one at Bill's house, I mean, both the Friday night and Saturday night went till the wee hours of the morning. And and they probably went even later than than when I left. And I left. I think probably three or four o'clock in the morning, both nights. So um, definitely more subdued in the Southeast, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that debauchery up to you guys in Texas. All I'm saying is if you don't want a Mormon carpet fest, you can come to <laughs> stop, stop, stop. <laughs> And we can have some fun. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, like it's, you see, you talk about bills. I think it's going to be even more. I don't know. I, I hear that it's actually it's actually the what is it the Northwest guys that are the craziest, aren't they? The ones really? who like. Well, I think they're the ones who try to raise money by killing Nick Mutton every year or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one year he ate a rat, and the next year he like was in some type of ice bath hot tub. I don't know. Okay. I don't okay. know much yeah. about that. Yeah, we stay away from like waterboarding or any other form of human torture at our carpet fest. But it, it's all for a good cause. If you're raising money for US Ark, I think you can get away with it. That's what I'm saying. I mean, we got to do something real weird to get $12,000. Yeah, so. I think they'll they'll keep the, the number one spot on that. I don't think we'll raise South Thousand. Well, we'll just raise hell. So We're going to raise negative. hell. Negative? Negative. Oh, okay. I don't know. You get... You get Tony to donate some killer Capondro and uh, Bill Steele to donate the right animals. You Shit might raise happen. some money, exactly. And uh, even even Ryan with options. some Ryan with some retics. Ryan donates some retics. We can. He's yeah. already donating his whole yeah. his whole house and everything. Yeah, you're right. He shouldn't us, have. To, we're going to be living there for. Friday through Sunday. But I feel, okay, but see, we, you're saying this. I keep telling, oh, not keep. I've only told one person that our house is available for them to stay at, yet you keep no. saying we're not going to be staying You'll here. You'll sleep here, but me and Austin are roughing it. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay, okay, let's end. We're, we're almost we're an hour past. We're at three past. hours. Yeah, so Ian, let's end this. Thank you so much for being here and for just having a great cool show. And fun. Thank you no for problem, not guys. sucking, because you'll be on our people who don't yep. suck. <laughs> I'm glad I can be on the list of people that don't suck. Um, and, and big shout out to you guys. I mean, I love what you guys are doing. Um, you guys are the drunk history of reptile podcasts. So I appreciate that. And uh, just keep up the good work. I, I love the episodes and I want to hear more of them. So thank keep you, it up. Thank, thank you. you so much. And. Uh, thanks everyone for watching and just commenting. I feel like we've had a lot of people this whole podcast. Thanks for supporting us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and thank you to anyone who voted in the Reptile Report Awards. We won't know the winners for a couple of days, 
we've already acknowledged that we won't win, but we're still thanking everyone because we were up against people who are a lot better than us and more experienced, yada, yada, yada. Yada, 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 again. Stop making fun of me for that. Um, but again, thank you. Catch us next week. Normal time with... Oh, shit, son. We got Kathy Ooh, Love. Ooh, with Kathy Love, which to us is really exciting. I don't know if that's exciting nice. to everyone else, but like, she's like... Florida representing... She's like old school, no real Florida. deal. She's yeah. real deal. Queen of Corn Snakes. Queen of Corn Snakes. Yeah. Damn. Peace out, guys. Okay. Later. Bye, everyone. Awesome. Have a good night, guys. Have a good one, man. <laughs>